0: My friends, I'm Jared Halverson, this is Unshaken, and I hope you're ready to dive back into the Doctrine and Covenants. The last couple of weeks we've had really long videos, longer than normal, and part of the reason is because I've been trying to introduce some, some big picture concepts. A couple of weeks ago we, we talked about proving contraries and the need for constant course correction, including an explanation or at least a discussion of some of the changing policies of the church regarding LGBTQ issues. And then last week we spent some extra time on scripture study in general, consistency and intensity, as well as the process of canonization and what goes into that as they were deciding to publish the Book of Commandments. Well, uh, today I'm just going to dive straight in. We have a lot to cover, sections 71 through 75. It's kind of a a potpourri of sorts. Uh, Rather than one overarching theme that runs throughout it, it's several. In fact, 71 and 73 kind of go together as far as what do we do with uh, uh, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon are working on the Joseph Smith Translation and there's kind of a, a stop and start and resume uh, a set of directions here in these revelations. 72 and 75 fit well together as far as uh, church organization. Bishops in 72 and missionaries sent forth in 75. And then 74 is kind of uh, thrown in there as well. Uh, which has nothing to do with the other revelations, but just an interesting explanation of a verse of Scripture that had been confusing to the saints. If you've ever watched Jeopardy!, there was often a a category called potpourri, and it was just random things thrown together. I don't know why exactly they called it potpourri unless it was some kind of, well, look, all these weird things, you throw them together into a bowl, and somehow they smell good together. Well, I really hope that today's lesson smells good together. Because it actually has a lot of principles that I resonate with and I hope that you'll find relevance in as well. Especially this first one. As many of you know, I just turned in my dissertation, uh, completing uh, way too long uh, period of time in graduate work uh, in a divinity school at Vanderbilt University. And my studies through those years was in anti-religious rhetoric. My master's thesis was on anti-Book of Mormon writings during the lifetime of Joseph Smith, and my PhD dissertation was on anti-biblical rhetoric from Thomas Paine. And to study all these people who attack faith is an interesting thing. So I've studied anti-Mormonism and anti-Methodism and anti-Catholicism and anti-Semitism and uh, you name it, to try to make sense of how people attack one another on issues of faith. And that's exactly what's happening in Section 71. The last several weeks we've talked a little bit about Ezra Booth, and he was one who joined the church when he saw a miracle performed, Joseph Smith healing the, the lame arm of, of Elsa Johnson. He's one who jumps the gun uh, to head down to Missouri, and when he gets there and he sees that the red carpet hasn't exactly been rolled out, that they're supposed to be the ones that are actually creating the red carpet for, uh, for later settlers, uh, he comes home with a, uh, a negative report of Zion, the place, as well as Zion, the people, to be, he, he rips on the church members, he rips on the church leadership, particularly Joseph Smith, and as he leaves the church, he wants to take out as many people as he can with him. And that's often the case, sadly. When somebody has a a crisis of faith and they leave, often they feel like I'm the one that has the right answers and I was duped before and now that I've seen the light, I want other people to see the light as well. And so in an effort to spread that perspective, Ezra Booth went around uh, writing anti-Mormon letters and and seeking anti-Mormon affidavits and and digging up whatever dirt he could find or plant uh, in people who knew the Smith family back in Palmyra and so on. At this exact time period, late 1831, Ezra Booth has been publishing these letters uh, in a local newspaper called the Ohio Star. And it is definitely souring the water uh, among some church members uh, and especially among the general public there in Ohio. Remember, saints are still gathering to, to Kirtland. It's the primary and preliminary gathering place before people are supposed to head down to Missouri. So a lot of people moving in, the neighbors are concerned about this already, and now that they're getting all this mudslinging going on against Joseph Smith and others, uh, it, it's really creating a, a difficult situation for the saints there in, in Ohio. And so when you get to section 71, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon have been working on the Joseph Smith translation. As soon as Joseph got back from his trip to Missouri, that was the, the major pressing order as far as moving forward the work of God. And so they, they jumped back into it. But at this point, there's so much opposition from out, without. That's why we talked about last time the need to canonize the Book of Commandments and, and publish it and send it out there to help combat some of that. Well, it also took some, some more active... Oh, missionary work, for lack of a better word, on Joseph and Sidney's part, to go out and combat the kind of falsehoods and, and r- rumors that were spreading. So pause the JST, go out and, and lay to rest some of these false reports, and then as soon as things are a little you know smoother, then resume your, your work on the JST. And 71 is the pause, and 73 is the resume. So that's what's going on here. It's interesting that fast forward to 1838, and it's when Joseph Smith writes the history of the church that we have canonized in the Pearl of Great Price. And the very first verse there, Joseph says one of the reasons he's doing this is to disabuse the public mind. There was so much opposition in that time period as well. Lots of uh, persecution in Missouri, the apostasy in Kirtland from the year before. I mean, there are problems wherever you look. And so to disabuse, I love that verb, because if you're disabusing the public mind, it suggests that the public mind had been abused. And that's exactly what was happening in that later period. It's exactly what Ezra Booth is trying to do in, in 1831. In fact, that's how Section 71 begins. And I love how it answers the question, how do we combat falsehood? Behold, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servants, Joseph Smith, Jr. and Sidney Rigdon, that the time has verily come that it is necessary and expedient in me that you should open your mouths in proclaiming my gospel, the things of the kingdom, expounding the mysteries thereof out of the scriptures, according to that portion of spirit and power, which shall be given unto you, even as I will. Now, just from verse 1, you can't even tell the context that they're, that they're living in. It seems like a mission call like any other. Hey, you should go out and proclaim the gospel. Expound the scriptures. Great. It's, but it's a few verses later that we'll realize, oh, that's why you're called to do that. That's what you're up against. We'll see a more direct and forceful combating of error in a few verses. But I love how he couches it from the very beginning. Start with the positive approach in mind. There's an old saying in sports that sometimes the best defense is a good offense because it keeps the other team off the field. Uh, You're pushing things forward. And I believe so often the best way to combat darkness is not to attack the darkness, it's simply to introduce the light. And the way they're asked to do it is so powerful proclaim the gospel, the things of the kingdom. Do you understand what we're trying to create upon the earth? This is big picture stuff. This is the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God returning, and and you can be a part of it. We're expounding the mysteries. We're answering people's questions. And how are we doing it? We're doing it out of the scriptures, the authoritative word of God. And perhaps most importantly, we're doing it according to the spirit and power that God gives us. Not proof texting, not Bible bashing, not trying to tear them down or, or, or make them look bad. Simply This is the truth. And when the spirit and power of God confirms that truth, then anti-Mormonism, oh, it pales in comparison. Now in verse 2, notice he has more than one audience. Verily I say unto you, proclaim unto the world, that's the first audience, in the regions round about, and in the church also, that's the second audience, for the space of a season, even until it shall be made known unto you. Verily, this is a mission for a season which I give unto you. So that clarification in verse 3, that reiteration, this is just going to be a little while. Your most important work is right now is the work on the Joseph Smith Translation. I I want truth, plain and precious parts to come forth. So this particular mission will only last for a season. Like he said back in verse 1, right now it is the time has verily come. It's necessary. In fact, it's expedient. It's gotten to that point where darkness has built up so much strength, where falsehood has so much momentum, that we're going to need to confront it more directly than usual. Like I said, we'll see that in a moment. So go out on this mission of apologetics. It's gotten to that point. But this will be a mission only for a season. Then it's back to bigger and better things. And like I said back in verse 2, those two audiences, it's not just for the world. I mean, guess who else is reading the Ohio Star? Church members. Guess who else is listening to Ezra Booth? It's not just outsiders, it's insiders. And with apostasy from within and opposition from without, Joseph and Sidney, uh, who better than the prophet Seer and Revelator himself and a former uh, minister who knows the gospel so well and sees the restoration filling in its holes to be able to preach. And again, Sidney Rigdon is from Ohio. At least that's where his congregation was. And so he is known and knows a lot of the people in the vicinity. So you two go out and teach. But I want you to to wrestle with that for a moment. Uh, Who are apologetics for? And who needs truth to help them combat error? So often we picture it's, it's those people outside the church that are attacking us. But as I imagine all of you have had to grapple with, there are people among us that are leaving. And so often when it's friends and family members, That's a heartbreak. And what I love about the dual audiences mentioned in verse 2 is that members of the church need to be strengthened just as much as non-members of the church need to be taught. In fact, maybe not just strengthened, maybe just taught from the get-go. It reminds me of uh, a concern that was raised on the heels of this last general conference, something that President Russell M. Nelson said. In that landmark talk about faith, the faith to move mountains, he talked about the need to not become lazy learners or lax disciples. And I had some students come to me afterwards and said, oh, there's all kinds of concern out there among people that have left the church or are struggling in their, in their faith and membership, uh, feeling that President Nelson had singled them out and had branded them lazy for leaving the church. And it was interesting to, to wrestle with that myself, seeing where they might be coming from uh, but, but also at recognizing when you read the entire talk and that statement in context, it doesn't seem that President Nelson is singling out people for a lack of propositional faith in terms of, can I sign off on all of these propositions? These, it's like, can I initial all of the 13 articles of faith? Rather, this was more, I mean, the faith to move mountains, that's more than just, can I accept all the, the, the propositions of the history of the church? This is, do I have a relationship with God to the point that I can call down his power? Not the kind of faith on display in fast and testimony meeting. Rather, the kind of faith that's on display in hospital rooms when hands need to be laid upon heads. That is not propositional truth. That is, that is divine power. And that requires faith far beyond any kind of lazy learning on the part of believers. I don't think President Nelson was calling out people leaving the church saying, oh, you've been lazy. In fact, as many of them pointed out, truthfully, honestly, I believe them in this. They said it was not laziness that brought me out of the church. In fact, I never studied church history more in depth or more intensely than during that long and painful process of, of losing my faith. That was not laziness. And I, and I validate that. I honor them for that. I just don't think that, that, that they're the target audience of President Nelson's words. Because that's not the kind of faith he was referring to. I think he was calling out active, faithful Latter-day Saints who have been lazy in the kind of learning that would help us tap into the power of God. To be able to move a mountain. Not just to answer some... Uh, historical complexity, and to those who are active learners, diligent researchers that have led them away from their membership in the church, the more I've wrestled with that and, and talked with students that, that have been struggling with those things themselves, I, I, I realize that the danger of, this, of their learning, when they say, no, I have been learning the, the unvarnished uh, warts in all history of the church unlike any other time in my life and I think, ah, well here's the danger because they feel like well I'm finally learning the negative and I already knew the positive remember there's the, the contrary we're trying to prove here between humanity and divinity and it's like no, I'm, I'm studying the humanity like I've never had before and I already knew the divinity I was raised with it but that to me is the irony of the lazy learner comment from President Nelson because those who are angry at President Nelson for using that phrase and who feel that they are being branded by that, when, I, when, like I said, I don't think that was his intention, nor his audience, the irony there is that they rightly can say, I've never been less lazy in my life than right now, studying all these things. And to me, it's like, well, yeah, that's the point. What about your study of truth that preceded it? Now, I can't speak across the board here. And that's why I prefer to have conversations one-on-one with people who are struggling so I know exactly what they're going through and what their past and present and perceived future might be. But here's the thing. They study on their departure so intensely and I just wonder, did you study that intensely before? Because I have found that generally speaking, and I know there are exceptions to this rule, but generally speaking, they grew up with the lawyers for the defense and believed them without thinking too hard about things, without studying really in depthly. It was like they didn't even know they were in a courtroom okay? because they never had heard anything from the lawyers for the prosecution. And as soon as they did, it was like, what? And it's all eyes and all ears on this side. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay attention to every statement from the prosecution. And I'm going to understand all of their evidence and their, their witnesses and so on. And they assume that they gave the lawyers for the defense the same kind of rapt attention because I grew up with them. That's the only side I ever heard. But like I said, if that's the only side you ever heard, were you really hearing them? Did you pay the same price when they said, I'm not a lazy learner. I want to go, oh, you definitely aren't right now. But, but have you ever been? And are you as, as studious and as, as in interested and as critically thinking with both sides now, because just because you grew up in the church or graduated from seminary or served a mission or any of those kinds of things doesn't mean you've studied the positives of church history with as much diligence as you seem to be studying the negatives of church history now. Believe me, I have studied the case for the prosecution intensely, both its content and even more so its rhetorical approach how are they trying to get believers to feel since the realm of religion is non-provable, sorry, defense, and non-disprovable, sorry, prosecution. This is a different kind of court case here. And I I understand that. But thankfully, I have, have been afforded the time throughout my career to give just as much, in fact, to give even more time for the lawyers for the defense to study just as intensely the, that side of the case. It's what President Ballard has said a million times. Make sure you give God equal time. Well, it's been my experience that as soon as somebody starts going down that rabbit hole, they stop giving God equal time because they feel like they already have. They've given God a lifetime. But again, how intensely did they give, it, they give that time to God? So Joseph and Sidney, don't just... Face the world and let them know that what they're hearing about the church is false. Face the church and not only help them see that the the falsehoods that are spreading about church leaders and, and, and church doctrine and so on is unfounded, but also more importantly, all that I just said back in verse one. Expound the mysteries of the kingdom to them. Help them understand the scriptures. Help them feel the power of the Holy Ghost. And none of that will come across through lazy learning. Help them really understand. That's why I'm so passionate about teaching Scripture as intensely as I possibly can. Some have asked me, I wish you'd make some videos to to clarify these church history issues. And honestly, there is an amazing institute class where we do so much of that. It's called Foundations of the Restoration. I wish every adult post-institute age had the, the privilege of going back and being able to take that. If I had the time, I I would love to film all of those lessons. They are powerful. That being said, I would still say that the most powerful approach to all of the falsehood that's out there, I've been doing for the last year and a half. I've been teaching the Book of Mormon, I've been teaching the Doctrine and Covenants, I've been trying my best to expound the mysteries of divinity out of the scriptures according to that portion of spirit and power which God gives to me. I am trying to fight darkness with light and I am neither lazy in my learning of of those who attack the faith nor in my learning and study of of the truths of the gospel that are found in scripture. I, I say that humbly on my part and I say that respectfully towards any who may be struggling or wrestling with these things those who have left the church, those that felt offended by that, my heart goes out to you. I understand where you're coming from. I wish I had the the time and the opportunity to sit down with every one of you one-on-one and hear your story, to join you in the wrestle over your doubts and questions. And what would I do? Yes, I would try to disabuse the public, or in this case, the personal or private mind. I would try to help, offer historical context or explanation of what was going on, or or answers to your questions. But honestly, what would I come back to? Dive back into God's Word, study the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, as intensely as you are studying the, the attacks on Church history that you've that you've been swallowed up by. Some have even asked, which lessons, which unshaken lessons so far have been have dealt with faith crisis issues. And tongue-in-cheek, I kind of smile and say, all of them. Every single one has principles of truth and righteousness. Light to help dispel darkness. In fact, in my opinion, that's the danger of pure apologetics. If that's all it is, is trying to prove that it's true and defend the faith on merely a rationalist epistemology, the, the real answers have to be spiritual. It has to be by that portion of spirit and power which God gives unto us, even as he will. You see that so much of the court case is outside the hands of either set of lawyers. And that's exactly where God wants it to be. And I try my best to honor that. So for those who are struggling, and for those who love and are concerned over those who are struggling, let's not take for granted that we know the gospel well enough. Let's keep learning the church needs to be an audience for these things just as much as the world does this is a mission for a season but we live in that season now verse four wherefore labor ye in my vineyard call upon the inhabitants of the earth and bear record and prepare the way for the commandments and revelations which are to come you see what's hinted at in the at the end of that there's more coming Back in verse 1, it was expound the mysteries out of the scriptures. That seems to be revelation past. Well, verse 4 is this promise of revelation future. I've talked about this before with the three shelves. Sister Kimball talked about the shelf, singular, where she places the questions that she can't answer. And that's the one that people who have left the church can't stand. They they feel like it's sticking your head in the sand and, and you won't address the difficult issues. Well, some things simply have not yet been revealed. That's the ninth article of faith. And once you take the ninth article of faith with its revelation past and revelation present and revelation future, you see there's three shelves and not just one. The problem that makes the third shelf collapse and bring down the whole, the whole bookcase with it is that shelf one grew dusty and shelf two is completely bare. And having lost a hold of revelation past and not having an experience with revelation present, of course we have no faith in revelation future. But if someone can help me dust off shelf one and remember the kinds of things that God has done for me in the past. And if someone, but maybe even more importantly, can help me navigate shelf two and help me learn truth and have, have realities revealed, expound scripture to me help me see the mysteries. Wow, when that starts happening, and I, and I pray that's happening for you through these videos. When the when the synapses are firing, when light bulbs come on, when Spirit it te- teaches Spirit, and you wow, I've never seen this before. Those are the most exhilarating times for gospel study for me. And the more well-stocked Shelf 2 is I start salivating over Shelf 3. It's not this, oh, that's an answer that I'll never get, or a question that'll never get resolved. It's no. I believe that there are great and important things God will yet reveal pertaining to the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's getting at in verse 4. Prepare the way for the commandments and revelations which are to come. Answers are on their way. But to prepare yourself, to prepare the way for revelation future, we have to be living in revelation present. And we have to show our appreciation for Revelation past. That's going to take all the efforts that we can muster. We're going to need to labor in the vineyard to do that. We're going to need to call upon the inhabitants of the earth to help them re-inventory shelf number one. And we're going to need to do a lot of burying record of Revelation past and present and Revelation future yet to come. Now verse 5. Now behold, this is wisdom. Whoso readeth, let him understand and receive also I wonder if the Lord had a specific set of people in mind when he said, whoso readeth. Was this the faithful that in some ways would need to join Joseph and Sidney on this mission, whether in their season or in ours? This is wisdom. This is the wise approach. Build up truth. Don't just tear down falsehood. Is this for those who are struggling? And are they the whoso readeth that this is the wise approach for you? Dust off shelf one. Start living into shelf two again and your perspective on shelf three will dramatically change. All of this is wisdom. Whoever, whichever group we happen to be in, I hope that we understand and receive. Now verse six, unto him that receiveth, it shall be given more abundantly, even power. This is that line upon line and precept upon precept. This is, this is appreciating the past and living in the, the present so that I'm ready for the future. It will be given more abundantly. And it's not just information that's being given. It's power that's being given. The power of God. It's the only way to truly confirm spiritual truth. I'm not saying that we ignore the head. Far from it. Most of my conversations with people are intensely uh, head-based. But but that's not at the exclusion of the heart. Remember, it's not just propositional uh, proofs that we're seeking. It's divine power, the faith that moves mountains, not just the faith that checks off boxes of, of articles of belief. Now, verse 7 is where it gets a little different. Uh, we've, the first six verses have been have been intensely positive in the approach. Verse 7 is now the more direct, uh, I don't know if I want to call it a negative approach, because it doesn't have to be. And Joseph and Sydney certainly weren't trying to be negative. So, so maybe rather than positive and negative, maybe it is better to say the direct versus the, the indirect versus the direct. And if the indirect approach is, is the trust in the Holy Ghost and bear witness of truth, expound the mysteries of, of the scriptures, just help people get, regain light, and then the darkness will take care of itself. It, it, it's forced to flee. Well, there are times where the public mind has to be disabused, where it has to unlearn some falsehood, Before it's even in a position to be open to learning truth. I've I've tried to explain this to people that are really struggling or trying to help others who are struggling. That often, on the front end, where doubts first start creeping in, but for the most part, it's, I believe, I just don't understand this. Well, information is often enough for that. Lord, I believe... Help thou my unbelief. And often the unbelief is just, I don't know how to explain this, or I don't know how to answer that. Well, some information is all you need. Talk to the head and you're good. It's when enough of that, those questions have, have grown into an underlying sense of doubt or concern about things, that now they're in the middle of the teeter-totter. It was stable over there. They're starting to inch their way over and now it's, it's unstable and they don't know what to do. Well, often there it's, well, it's going to have to be a heart conversation. And how do we understand the things of God? And what experiences have you had? And so on. The challenge is when they've walked all the way to the other side because they crave the stability they felt uh, formerly. And now it's the stability of, oh, I'm just out. And I don't have to worry about the questions anymore because I feel like I have answers. And they're all to the negative. Well, sadly, when somebody gets to that extreme, often all the testimony in the world isn't going to do anything. Because sometimes by then they've lost faith in faith. They've lost faith in God. they've lost faith in the Holy Ghost's power to confirm to confirm truth. They explain it they explain it away in other terms. Oh, it's just confirmation bias or it's it's just self-induced. You know, that's just brain chemistry. Call it whatever you will. And that's one of the most frustrating things when we're trying to help people is my testimony isn't working for them. Well, It's because they've already gone to the other point where they're no longer willing to listen to that. And often it's then that if it was information that inched them away from this side, well, it's often information that will help them inch away from that side. To borrow from Elder Uchtdorf's uh, great statement that we need to doubt our doubts before we doubt our faith. Well, sometimes we need to doubt our doubts after we've doubted our faith. Because doubting the faith is what got them over the the teeter-totter to begin with. But now that they have these doubts that they don't even call doubts anymore, they're sure of themselves, that it's just it's all false and we all should leave the church and so on. That's Ezra Booth for you. Well, is there information that I can bring up that would help them doubt their doubt, their newfound conviction? I mean, they found information to problematize the the narrative of faith. Well, can we offer them information that problematizes the new narrative? How do you explain the Book of Mormon, for example? Because all those other you know, Solomon Spalding and, e- and View of the Hebrews and the late Great War and all these things, those really don't hold water. So how do you explain that? In some ways, I'm trying to dust off shelf one with them, gently. <laughs> uh, just trying to remind, how do you explain your patriarchal blessing? How, how do you explain the, the inexplicable? Things you can't just chalk up to confirmation bias or or self-induced spiritual experience. Have you ever been surprised by the Holy Ghost? I have. Have you ever been party to what you really can't explain in any other way but the divine? I have. Now, even over on this side, you have to be careful that you're not coming in with guns blazing to try to rip their perspective to shreds. That's contention and contentions of the devil. So like we saw in Third Nephi over and over, even if it's good goals that you have and trying to clarify true doctrine, as soon as you do it in the wrong way, that's back to section 50, we keep referring to it any other way, and it's not of God. That's why my ultimate hope in sitting down with people is still the stuff that we saw in section 50. By the end, can we rejoice together? Can we understand one another? Have we both been edified? I trust their ability to help edify me. I trust the sincerity of their heart and the righteousness of their desires, even if we don't see eye to eye on some of the historical particulars. I want them to feel loved and understood and validated and empathized with in every opportunity that I, that I sincerely and honestly can. The gears of faith have been grinding for them. And I want to loosen them up through what Elder Maxwell called the lubricant of love. And perhaps if I do that, through through kindness and through honesty, if I can validate their experiences that 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 lie behind their questions and concerns, if I can empathize with the emotions that come as a result, then perhaps with that lubricant of love, I can suggest some alternate perspectives through which they can look at those experiences. Because if I just change the, the angle of my attitude and look at the same experience, the same issue, the same question, the shadow of doubt is cast in a different direction. The emotions that come, if, if here's my experience and, and my, my perception is coming from this angle, of course it's going to cast emotions in a certain direction. And I can validate the experience, I can empathize with the emotion. But with that love in place, then hopefully I can offer them. I'm not going to crank it to some other position, but I'm going to offer them. You know, there's not, that's not the only way to perceive this. And from this angle, you could look at the same experience or the same issue, and these other emotions might come. At the end of the day, it's going to be your choice. You get to be judge and jury in this court case. But it is a court case. Both sides have a leg to stand on. That's what makes the the position, the verdict of the judge or the decision of the jury fraught with moral significance and exercise of agency with priorities and consequences and motivations all a part of the mix. God is serious about helping us grow up in him. That's why he allows there to be a court case at all. So... By the time you get to verse 7, after six verses of the positive approach, the, the indirect approach, oh, just teach truth and, and, and let the chips fall where they may. Verse 7 is for those that have gotten to a point on the opposite side of the teeter-totter that you're going to need to have your mind disabused. There's going to need to be a deconstruction of falsehood before there can be a reconstruction of faith. So here's the approach, verse 7. Wherefore, confound your enemies. Call upon them to meet you, both in public and in private. And inasmuch as ye are faithful, their shame shall be made manifest. Now, verse 7, ooh, tread lightly, my friends. Okay? And remember, this is verse 7, not verse 1. Too often, when we meet somebody who's attacking the church, we jump straight to verse 7 and go, oh, you want bring it on. I'm going to confound you, you, you enemy. I'm going to call upon them to meet me. Public, private, bring it on. I'm, I'm going to prove you, prove you wrong. It's the horrible story I heard of uh, some general conference protesters. And, and I'm sure a well-meaning Latter-day Saint that was so offended. And, tr- and truly, the protesters were doing some offensive things. But this, this apologist, wanting to defend the faith, actually went on the offensive and took the laying on of hands a little too literally. And there was a fist fight. Yeah, it was in the news. And I just thought, man, in your efforts to defend the faith, you gave the attackers of faith more to work with. Or put it this way, it wasn't just the attacker that you gave the black eye to. You gave the whole church a black eye. Like Elder Hales said in his magnificent talk about Christian courage, yeah, have the courage to defend the faith, but do it in a Christ-like way. It's got to be Christian courage. He said, the worst thing you can do when somebody attacks you and says that you're not a Christian is to prove them right by the way you respond to them. We can't be un-Christ-like in our our defense of Christianity. What I'm trying to say is, is the order here in section 71 is so important. Begin with the positive, the bearing of testimony, the expounding of scripture, the helping them feel divine spiritual power. And for certain groups, after you have after you've gone through all of that and it's not making a difference in them because their mind has been so abused, then what do you do? Then confound them. It's only the enemies. And so often it's they haven't become enemies yet. But treating those friends as enemies sometimes becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy. We've pushed them over the edge. In this case, these are the true enemies that have already gotten to that point. And for some of those confound them, call upon them, it's uh, interesting, in public and in private. And honestly, I wonder which of the two is most effective. There are times when the attack is so public that the defense has to be public as well. But even that can be done in a Christ-like way. When the Book of Mormon musical came out and started winning Tony Awards left and right, remember how the church uh, responded to the, the attack in the Book of Mormon musical? In fact, the, the writers of the musical, Parker and Stone, were even interviewed. They're like, weren't you worried that the, the LDS church was going like, to sue you guys for, for slander or libel or defamation or whatever? And they're like, do you know any Latter-day Saints? We do. We grew up with them in Colorado. They're the nicest people ever. And we thought, oh, they can take a joke. Even when it wasn't much of a joke. Uh, in fact, and, and somebody else said, well, but a musical? That's kind of weird. Why would you do it in a musical format? And again, the creators uh, said, again, have you met any Latter-day Saints? I've never seen a group of people that seem at any moment ready to bust out into song and dance. It's like the life of a Latter-day Saint is like a, a musical in the making. And they laugh and I'm like, ah, I actually take that as a compliment. Life as a Latter-day Saint would make a good musical. Not the one that they made. But to, to think on their side, oh, they're not going to attack us for us attacking them. Well, thankfully for all concerned, the church proved them right. And instead of suing them, what did they do? The church simply bought ad space in the playbill that said, well, now that you've seen the musical, come read the book. Or the book is always better than the play or the movie. Come give it a try. And taking out ads on Broadway and Times Square and New York City when when it was out, I thought the church's approach was incredible. It was the first six verses of Section 71. Fight darkness with light. Now, like I said, does there come a time that verse 7 is painfully necessary? Yes. And and the time had come for the the people there in 1831. The time has verily come. Unfortunately, it's necessary and expedient to do this. And the church will do that on occasion. But I do love the, the meet them in both public and in private. Because in my experience, it has been the private conversations that make the biggest difference. I often talk about these stages of faith and going from uh, Elder Hafen talked about simplicity to complexity to simplicity on the other side of complexity. I call it creation fall atonement and the innocence of Eden that that collapses in the, the frustration of the fall and can only be fixed by the elevation of the atonement, by going to Gethsemane. And that's the invitation of these first six verses of just come, keep climbing, you've progressed to get here. Don't stop progressing now, just keep going. But I found that navigating those stages and progressing from creation to fall to atonement, well, the first step from creation to fall, that can be done collectively, unfortunately. In fact, those who typically attack the church, especially those who do it from within, former church members that leave the church and then want to take as many fellow former saints with them as possible, That is often done in a very public kind of a thing with podcasts and videos and and firesides and conferences and all those kinds of things. We want to take them in mass. Whereas I have found that while it's really easy to get a mass of people to go from creation to fall, just kick them all out of Eden. It's so much harder to take a collective mass and help them move from fall to atonement. The path to Gethsemane is a very narrow one. And it's usually only wide enough for two. As you navigate a a single solitary traveler, as you walk with them hand in hand, side by side, it's easy to to find all the, the eggs and go crack as many shells as you possibly can to free the chicks from their bondage. You just killed them. They'll, they'll come to a certain point where the, where the egg feels too constrictive. And in their push, they'll strengthen their wings so they can actually survive outside the shell. You have done them no favors by pushing them out of stage one spirituality unprepared. And I'm not trying to, to force you out of stage two spirituality. I'm not trying to, to, to grab you and, and yank you off, to pull you by the ear up to, up to Gethsemane. No, that is a personal climb. And you will know best when you are ready to make it. I'm not trying to reinforce shells and keep people in them, believe me. But growth is an individualized process. And so it's the individual. It's meeting in private that I have found does the most good. And that last line might even be more important than the ones that preceded it. Inasmuch as ye are faithful, their shame shall be made manifest. Their shame shall be made manifest. That's passive voice, which, like we've studied before, avoids blame or or participation even. Who's behind it? I don't know. It just happened. The problem is, like I said, some people want to jump to verse 7 without doing the positive work of 1 through 6. They want to treat them like enemies when they still have the chance to be friends. Same thing at the end of verse 7. They want to shame the opposition into compliance or into conviction. And that doesn't work. I'm trying to make you feel like an idiot for believing things that, that are decontextualized or only tell half the story. No. No. What's interesting is it's not that I'm trying to use information to shame them. Or even kind of social pressure from the church or from your family or whatever it might be. I'm not trying... To, shame isn't going to do anything there. Shame is the tool of the adversary. Those in the great and spacious building mocking, pointing the finger. And that's really what it boils down to. I can't prove that the gospel's false. So I'm going to try to help you feel shame by making you feel like an idiot for believing it that's on the rational side or trying to make you feel immoral for living that way that's on the the emotional or the the heart side of things if I can make the restored gospel look absurd in its historical claims or immoral or unethical in its social positions then I just shamed you out of the church and sadly I see it happen all the time well we should never try to shame them back into it. That's just descending to the devil's level. Instead, what do we do? We simply be faithful. Faithful to the Lord, faithful to our friends and neighbors, and even love our enemy. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. We love them. We validate, we empathize, we listen. And if there is ever shame to be felt... Shame that shall be made manifest. It's the type that will rise up within them naturally when they sense a juxtaposition of their ill will to someone else's goodwill. In fact, back to this history, go back to Zion and fast forward a little while. And when Edward Partridge was tarred and feathered by the Missouri mob, Bishop Partridge, W.W. Phelps' uh, press had been thrown out, and the Pages of the doctrine of the Book of Commandments were being shredded or burned when Bishop Partridge was tarred and feathered, this Israelite in whom there was no guile. He took it with such love, with such resignation. In fact, he credited God for it. It was one of those, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do kind of moments. It was such resignation and peace that Bishop Partridge felt had come to him as a gift from God, power of the Spirit, that the mob themselves were so... They came to their senses. They were ashamed of what they were doing. And they couldn't continue with it. That They stopped. And they let Bishop Partridge go. That is such an amazing scene in church history, in my mind. And I wish that we could respond that way when people are attacking us. Or questioning us. Or leaving us. It's our faithfulness that will someday bring a degree of shame. Think of the prodigal son. His dad didn't chase him down. The older brother might have wanted to. <laughs> uh, but the dad or the brother didn't chase him down and try to shame him back into to compliance. No, instead, they honored his agency. And ultimately, he came to himself. And compared the, the lifestyle he was living at the time with the kindness of his father, even towards servants back at home. The, our, their shame shall be made manifest in as much as we are faithful. Let them juxtapose light and darkness. Let them juxt, By their fruits you shall know them. Let them compare the fruits of faithfulness versus faithlessness. Just be kind. Just be Christlike. And then let patience have her perfect work. Now, verse 8, the Lord says, Wherefore, let them bring forth their strong reasons against the Lord. Let them let come. With There's something about that confidence on his part of, it's true, so what are they going to say? Is our history perfect and flawless? Of course not. We're human beings. Again, prove the contraries. Humanity and divinity. If you grew up thinking it was only divinity with no humanity, then no wonder when you corrected, you overcorrected. And now it's all humanity with no divinity. Well, you were wrong on both extremes. Bring forth your strong reasons against the Lord. And let's talk about them. In fact, Sidney Rigdon challenged... Uh, invited, I don't know the right word there, uh, but said to Ezra Booth as well as to Simon's writer. He was another one who had joined the church uh, in Kirtland and then had left it and left with some major hard feelings and wanting to tear down the church. Many believe that Simon's writer was among the group that came to tar and feather Joseph Smith and drag him out of the John Johnson farm. I mean, that, that whole episode is an intense moment in church history as well. Sidney Rigdon is dragged out of the cabin that he lived in in mean, late March of 1832, just a few months after this, as they're dragging him by the heels and his head is bouncing across the frozen ground. Many believe, uh, historians look back, think that he suffered brain damage that during that period and, and might have never fully recovered from it. Joseph almost... Tarring and feathering wasn't just to humiliate. It wasn't just to bring shame upon someone. I mean, yeah, let's cover them with, strip them down, cover them with tar and put it, put chicken feathers all over, make them look like a chicken themselves. Ha, ha, ha. But what they would often do is force the tar paddle into their mouth, trying to pour the hot tar down their throat so that it would burn their mouth as it went down. But then congeal as it, as it cooled and hardened in the throat in hopes that it would suffocate the victim. This was attempted murder, not just attempted humiliation. And in fact, at that time period with Joseph Smith, if it wasn't just attempted murder from the tar, they tried to force a vial of poison down his throat as he's fighting him back and clenching his teeth to, to keep it out. And they break it against it and chips a tooth that, that causes a little whistle in his voice for the rest of his life. According to some reports, they'd even attempted or at least uh, perhaps planned to castrate him that night. Instead, they, they limit it to tarring and feathering and attempted poisoning and then leave him for dead as he... stumbles back towards the house and Emma sees him the moonlight glistening off the tar and thinking that it's blood and she faints and then comes to and Joseph comes in and spends the rest of the night on the kitchen table as they are peeling away tar and the skin that it was stuck to and yet what does Joseph do the next day which happened to be the Sabbath he just preached like normal his flesh all scarified as he said and even baptized a few later that day. He just... He fought darkness with light. Well, sorry for the tangent. It it is all related and is again just a few months away. But when Sidney Rigdon challenged Ezra Booth and Simon's Rider, kind of the two masterminds behind this, this period, this round, this cycle of anti-Mormon persecution, he invited both men to face him. Sidney Rigdon, who was a great preacher himself, knew his stuff, amazing, eloquent speaker. I would have been a tough debate uh, partner. He invited Ezra Booth to come meet him and and speak at a Christmas Day uh, lecture. Well, Ezra Booth didn't want to have anything to do with that. And when he challenged, when Sidney Rigdon challenged Simon's writer to come and, well, let's debate the Book of Mormon. We'll make it public for all to see. And Simon's writer didn't want to have anything to do with that either. Now, you do have to understand that debate in the early 19th century was... It was a public affair, and it was... I mean, in the days before much entertainment, this was like a verbal boxing match. People would come from far and wide. It's like, wait, there's a debate going on? I mean, there was a really famous debate between Alexander Campbell, who was a Christian apologist, former friends with Sidney Rigdon, right? And a skeptic, a free thinker that, that didn't believe the Bible at all. And so those two went mano a mano uh, for days and it was published and so on. The debating was a huge source of entertainment and conflict and it was contentious. Sidney Rigdon was ready to roll up the sleeves and, and, and go after it. Uh, yeah, come present your strong reasons against the Lord. Well, his would-be opponents didn't want to, didn't want to wrestle with him. And I can't blame them. But more importantly, verse 8 was not, not Sidney Rigdon's words. He's not you know, th- throwing down the gauntlet and saying, bringing it on. This is the Lord saying, go ahead and bring your strong reasons. Because they're against me. And I can handle that. If you have reasons for disbelief, I understand. But I have reasons for belief. And I would love to be able to explain them to you. The Lord then says in verse 9, Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, there is no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. That is such an important promise for anyone who is, has the courage to go and, and meet with someone in public or better yet in private to talk about their concerns, to trust in that. It's actually an echo of something that I, the Lord said in Isaiah and that the Lord repeated himself directly in 3 Nephi when he was among the Nephites. The complete verse says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall revile against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. There's an interesting story behind that verse. There was a time when Ezra Taft Benson and Boyd K. Packer were both being heavily criticized by opponents of the church. Those two men were, were staunch believers in the positions that they held. Uh, but often uh, they were kind of lightning rods for opposition. In fact, Ezra Dev Benson was that, like that even when he was in the cabinet as a government official. At one point he even said to President Eisenhower, look, if I'm causing you problems for re-election or, in, or getting your policies through, feel free to drop me from the cabinet. Believe me, I've got a great day job. <laughs> I'd love to go back and just be an apostle again. Okay? He was in the Quorum of the Twelve at the time. And Eisenhower was like, if you leave, then I leave. And of all of his cabinet members, only two of them, he retained the entire eight years of his two terms. And one of those was Ezra Taft Benson. President Eisenhower loved President Benson. But President Benson stuck to his guns. In fact, one of my favorite details is, uh, I don't know if it was in his office as president of the church, but in other offices that he was in, he had a little plaque on his desk that said, be right and then be easy to live with if possible, but in that order. <laughs> and I love that. I mean, he's trying to prove a contrary, right? Be right and be e- easy to live with. It's what Paul said, speak the truth in love. But President Benson definitely had an order there. Well, that kind of conviction and, and unbending strength, that, that, was, that was tough. He wasn't always easy to live with for certain groups in the, in the world, in the country, and in the church. And at one point when, when both he and President Benson were being heavily criticized, President Benson opened up his wallet and pulled out a little slip of paper and showed it to President uh, Packer, and, or Elder Packer at the time, and said, I always keep this in my wallet as a reminder. It was a verse of scripture from uh, President Benson's favorite book, the Book of Mormon, and guess what it said? No weapon formed against thee shall prosper. It was that verse from 3 Nephi. It's what the Lord is is referring to here in section 71, verse 9. Trust me, I've got you. And whether it's Ezra Booth letters in the Ohio Star, whether it's being tarred and feathered by Simon's rider and his, his band of ruffians, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. As he promised in verse 10, if any man lift his voice, or worse, against you, he shall be confounded in mine own due time. Now we might like the first half of that verse more than the second. Great, confound them, bring them to shame. Well, it's going to be in mine own due time. You see, I play the long game and I would rather have them time to change their hearts or time for the people to have to weigh their options and to exercise their agency and to to really become judge and jury in this case because they'll grow from the experience. There's important things that happen in the in the slide from Eden down to, to the land east of Eden. The fall is an important stage in our theology. Can we consider that even in people's falls from faith? Provided that we can help them reascend to the atonement? It'll be in mine own due time. The Lord had actually said something similar earlier in section 24, where he promised, Whosoever shall lay their hands upon you by violence. And that's exactly what happened in that spring of 1832 with the tarring and feathering. Ye shall command to be smitten in my name. And behold, I will smite them according to your words in mine own due time. So there again you see that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Of you it is required to forgive all men. Right? I'll forgive whom I will forgive. I'll take care of it. But I'll take care of it in mine own due time. I see the big picture. Okay? Trust me. Then this this section ends in verse 11. Wherefore, keep my commandments. They are true and faithful. Even so, amen. It's your faithfulness that's going to make a difference. So keep my commandments. What you're trying to defend is true and faithful. So please be true and faithful yourself. Christian courage. Both are required. Now, that was Section 71, the beginning of December, 1831. If you skipped ahead to Section 73, it's now middle of January, 1832. So a little over a month has passed. And let, let me come right back to Section 72. There's some important things there I don't want to skip over. But let's jump ahead to 73, because if 71 is put the JST on hold and go out and, and disabuse the public mind, 73 is, okay, good job. You have combated falsehood with truth. But now there's enough of that out there. Let's give, time, uh, give people time to think about this and, and come to an understanding and a, and a decision. In the meantime, that season has passed. Come back and, and resume work on the JST. So the Lord tells them, verse 1, For verily thus saith the Lord, it is expedient in me that they should continue preaching the gospel and in an exhortation to the churches in the regions round about, until conference. Remember, it was always kind of line upon line, six months by six months. I'll tell you what to do until next conference. And there at the conference, you can can counsel together with one another. There's the horizontal communication. And then receive revelation from me. There's the vertical communication. And then decide what to do for the next six months beyond that. Now, the they here is other elders of the church. And what are you supposed to do? Keep preaching the gospel. There's to outsiders. And keep exhorting the churches. That's the insiders. So same dual audiences we saw back in in section 71. Now verse 2, then, after the next conference, behold, it shall be made known unto them by the voice of the conference their several missions. So several missions, not a one and done. There's always work to be done. As soon as you come home from one mission, well, what's the next? As soon as you're released from one calling, well, what would you have me do uh, from this point forward? And in between them, I can be anxiously engaged and nobody has to tell me. Well, it will be made known by the voice of the conference. And again, there I see the horizontal and the vertical as well. It'll be made known, that seems to suggest revelation uh, from above, but also by the voice of the conference. There's us counseling in our councils. There's us discussing things together. Agency and inspiration. The Lord's trying to help us grow up in him. Verse 3, Now verily I say unto you, my servants Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon. So now, if that was for the elders, now this is just for you too. Saith the Lord. It is expedient to translate again. A month and a half ago, it was necessary and expedient to pause the translation. Now it is expedient to pick it back up. Verse 4, and inasmuch as it is practicable to preach in the regions roundabout until conference, and after that, it is expedient to continue the work of translation until it be finished. So your main mission is going to be the Josephine translation, and kind of your your side hustle. (laughs) Your your secondary mission is whenever you can, as much as it's practicable, go out and and keep preaching. I mean, there's a lot of things to do. There are several missions to perform after all, but you do kind of need to prioritize them at any given time. And what's the most expedient in God for me to do right now? And as he says in verse five, let this be a pattern unto the elders until further knowledge, even as it is written. And that's, that's a beautiful statement to extend it beyond just uh, these elders and beyond just J- Joseph and Sidney. This is the example, the pattern for all of you. And what pattern is that? Oh, I get it. You want me to combat anti-Mormonism uh, in between retranslating Scripture. Well, that's really specific. Uh, I mean, how many, how many of us actually, A, combat anti-Mormonism, or B, translate Scripture? So let's not make this too specific. If this is a pattern, ah, it's a pattern. It's not a set of marching orders across the board. It's a pattern. And patterns can be different materials going to be used and different sizes. There's a lot of adjustment possible based on the single pattern that we're given. And so what pattern is the Lord suggesting here? There's a pattern of, of outside and inside. You need to be aware of of the needs of those outside the church that we can share the gospel with. You also need to be aware of those inside the church that we could be strengthening. That's a good pattern to follow. I mean, how many of you full-time missionaries out there to proclaim the gospel also do a lot of reactivation and retention work or strengthening members of the church? Especially in places like Europe where it's so hard to share the gospel with non-members. Your presence in some of those isolated wards or branches is such such a blessing to the members right there. You are strengthening them, whether or not anyone outside the church ever chooses to come into it. That's a good pattern to follow. There's also the pattern of following the Lord's direction, of seeking vertical revelation and engaging in horizontal conversation and counseling. It's a great pattern to, to seek the Lord's will for the next few steps and not expect him to tell you everything, the end from the beginning. These are all wonderful patterns to follow. And perhaps my favorite one of all is the one he hints at in verse 4 about major missions and then underlying ones that you should engage in in as much as it is practicable. Now that, I, I, the last couple of days as I've been studying these, these revelations and, and preparing this lesson, that phrase has just, I've come to love it. I don't know how I missed it the last 40 years. But as much as it's practicable, it, it's like don't run faster than you have strength. Is it practicable to do that? Now, I wanted to see what the Lord might have meant by that word in in the 1830s. And so in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, the word practicable means this. That may be done, affected or performed by human means or by powers that can be applied. It is sometimes synonymous with possible, but the words differ in this possible is applied to that which might be performed if the necessary powers or means could be obtained practicable is limited in its application to things which are to be performed by the means given or which may be applied and then webster gives this example it was possible for archimedes to lift the world but it was not practicable remember archimedes famous statement about leverage That if I had a fulcrum and a place to stand on with the right lever arc, I could move the world. Well, yeah, I guess that's possible. I mean, the physics is correct behind that statement. But it's not practicable. You can't actually do that. You don't have a lever that size or a fulcrum to use like that. And you definitely don't have a place to stand on to do it. And I love that the Lord uses that word. He doesn't say, well, as much as possible. Because it's like, well, I know there's more that I could be doing. And that can be paralyzing for perfectionists. Ah, is there more that I could be doing? It's like that, that phrase from Jacob 5, what more could I have done for my vineyard? Well, all of us can have, can have thoughts pop into our head if we ask ourselves that question. Is there more that was possible? Of course. I could have pulled more all-nighters. Ah, that's not the word the Lord used. In as much as it is practicable. Not even humanly possible, but rather in the situation you find yourself right now. Is it practicable? What means do you have? How much time do you have? What are your family circumstances? To to have conversations with, with presidencies or priesthood leaders about callings and assignments and so on, and just to recognize what is practicable based on the circumstances in which you find yourself. I am so grateful that the Lord used that word. Because it's proof that he understands our circumstances. And when we're doing everything that we can, but there's things that we wish we could be doing, but I just I don't have the time or the energy or the the, the mental stamina or the physical strength, the Lord gets it. It's okay. If all you have time for is the JST. And remember, Joseph never felt like he actually finished it because there were so many other things that demanded his time and attention. So let alone going out on all these other missions and, and preaching in the regions roundabout, it's like there's always more to do than time to do it in. My heart is always pulled towards people that I don't have time to connect with. More starfish to throw back into the sea. But what is practicable? That is a pattern For all of us to follow. Know your limits. Know your load capacity. Your carrying capacity. If you've ever seen signs. On a freeway overpass. That has a height clearance. Or on a bridge. That has a a weight maximum. They're letting you know. What is practicable. And if your truck is too high. Or too heavily laden. Do not go over that bridge. Do not go under that overpass. It's not going to be a pretty sight. It's not going to work. And so, please, my friends, you diligent, wonderful, unshaken saints, don't run faster than you have strength. Yeah, run. Be diligent. Win the prize. All of those great statements that he gives whenever he couches that, that counsel of, of not running too fast. But please know, take, keep taking your temperature. Know what you're able to do. And the Lord only asks you that you accomplish the practicable. Ah, it's merciful of him. And a beautiful pattern to follow. He then says in conclusion, verse 6, Now I give no more unto you at this time. Remember, it's conference to conference. So, what do you do in the meantime? Gird up your loins and be sober, even so. Amen. Sober. It's not an alcohol problem. Okay, It's simply a seriousness challenge. Take these things seriously. Gird up your loins. That's a, that's a running phrase. You don't want to trip up over your robes. So run, but don't run faster than you're able. Great piece of advice. Now, will go back to section 72. And this is the, verse, the, the, the section we skipped over so we can stay on kind of the same wavelength of pause the JST, go out and disabuse the public mind. Okay, pause the disabusing of the public mind. There's, you're good enough for now. Let's resume our work on the JST. Now, in between those, uh, back at the beginning of December 1831, a gathering of elders and church members comes together, and it's like, okay, I'm really glad that the Lord is telling you, Joseph and Sidney, the stuff that you should be doing, but what about us? Could you please let us know what the Lord wants us to be doing in the meantime? Now, this revelation is actually a set of several revelations that were all combined into one because they do have some, some similarities here. But the first one has to do with the calling of a bishop. We just saw in a previous revelation that just as Edward Partridge was called to be bishop in Zion, there would yet be other bishops called to administer to the temporal needs of the saints in other parts, since we're not all going to Zion yet. And that's all going to be clarified here. So verse 1, Hearken and listen to the voice of the Lord, O ye who have assembled yourselves together, who are the high priests of my church, to whom the kingdom and power have been given. I love that the Lord talks in such lofty terms. It's not just, hey, a bunch of you uh, farmers and And mechanics and blacksmiths and and carpenters. No, you are the high priests of my church. The kingdom and the power is yours. So yes, you deserve to know how to how to roll off the kingdom triumphant. Well, here's some instructions. Verse two: Verily, thus saith the Lord, it is expedient in me for a bishop to be appointed unto you, or of you, unto the church in this part of the Lord's vineyard. Catch what the Lord did with his prepositions there. You're going to need a bishop. Uh, in this part of the Lord's Vineyard. Now, this isn't like a bishop, the way we think of them, it, in terms of your, their primary calling is to run the ward. Make sure sacrament meeting talks are, are assigned and callings are given out and so on. Now, in, that's going to happen a little bit later in the 1840s. But he, at this point, it's really, you're in charge of temporal affairs. That's why you're the head of the Aaronic Priesthood. Temporal affairs. Accepting consecrated funds. Uh, giving out stewardships caring for the poor and the needy, all of those kinds of things. And since we have two main gathering places, Missouri and Ohio, we're going to need, for now, two bishops, one in each spot. But back to his prepositions, a bishop's going to be appointed unto you, or of you. Well, the, which preposition was right? Both are. A bishop is called unto the people that he's serving. I'm here for you. But he's also called of them. He's one of the group. It's, well, we saw that earlier when, it, when Edward Parchers was sent and he was told that his residence was supposed to be in Missouri, in Zion. So that's not just the place of your responsibility. It's the place of your, rever- your residence. I need you to be among them, of them, so that you understand what they're going through and the kinds of lives that they're living. This is like condescension on the mortal level. The Lord was willing to condescend to be with us. Well, bishops are among the people. They're within that area of among the people that they're serving. I have loved the bishops that I have served with and, the, and those bishops who have been kind enough to serve me and my family. And they're neighbors. They're friends. They're down the street. understand the situation. It, bishops are where the rubber hits the road. And so they're not just unto you. They're of you. In fact, on my mission, I heard this. It rhymes in Spanish, so it sounds better. But it was the the funniest statement about ward and stake organizations. And I've served in both capacities, and so I'll back this up. But in Spanish, it says, Del obispo para abajo es todo trabajo. Del obispo para arriba es toda saliva. And what that means is, roughly translated, from the bishop on down, el obispo para abajo es todo trabajo, it's all work. Del obiso para arriba, from the bishop on up, or everything above the bishop, es toda saliva, which means it's all saliva, it's just spit. In other words, it's just talk. Now, I'm not saying this to diminish the importance of the saliva of those who are called to lead on higher levels. I will always treasure my time in the Stake Young Men's presidency. And I will always be grateful for high counselors and stake presidencies and all those in higher levels of of authority for all the good that they do. I think that that fun Spanish uh, couplet is simply to suggest that that you're a step removed from from boots on the ground, rubber hitting the road. You are training those who are doing that. Again, I hope I hope that didn't offend anyone in a in a state presidency. Okay? I'm so grateful for all the good that you do. But since so many of you were bishops at one point yourself, you probably agree that it's a different kind of a load. You're both probably equally busy. But there is a difference between administering and ministering. Both of those take place on both levels, I understand. But there's something powerful about this these bishops called unto you and of you where you're going to be there with, with dirt under your fingernails. Helping people move and going to girls camp and, and, you know, and high adventure. Working with the youth, helping people repent. Counseling in, in troubled marriages and, and, and going to the hospital to give blessings. And, and so much of that ministering, of course, happens on every level. But there's nothing quite like a bishop unto and of. The people that he's serving. To any of you bishops out there who might be listening, my hats off to you. I thank you and I honor you for the service that you render so selflessly. My wife and I just went out to dinner with a, a wonderful old mission friend of mine, uh, and we we're just sitting there eating Mexican food, having a, having a great conversation, and and when this friend started explaining to me his his calling as bishop and the weight that he feels on his shoulders. and It was a beautiful thing not just to be sitting there eating Mexican food, but feeling the Spirit of God. As this, as this good bishop's heart just came through the conversation loud and clear. He is someone called unto his neighbors, and he is of them. Not thinking he's better than anyone else, but just wanting to make a positive difference in their lives. During this season, where he's called to, to serve in this part of the Lord's vineyard. Now well, verse three starts to explain a little bit more why bishops in, in every part of the Lord's vineyard will be required. Verse three, verily in this thing ye have done wisely. For it is required of the Lord at the hand of every steward to render an account of his stewardship, both in time and in eternity. Now that's an interesting twist. We usually think of bishops as those who give callings. And and yes, that's a huge part of what they do now. But in those days, it was more about giving stewardships and receiving reports of those stewardships so they'd know, well, how much do you need to cover your needs and wants and how much can you contribute back to the storehouse so that we can then give stewardships to other people as the saints continue to gather into Zion. And so the priority here in verse 4 is to receive those stewardships. Or better said, to receive an account of those stewardships. If it's required at the hand of every steward, I gave you something with responsibility, with strings attached, that bind you back to me, the Lord of the vineyard. Well, then it's your responsibility to give an accounting of that. I gave you five talents. How many do you have now? I gave you two. I gave you one. What have you done with them? And so why do you need a bishop in both parts of the vineyard here? Because there's going to be consecration going on in both places, stewardships going on in both places. And and what fascinates me here is the focus was less about giving responsibilities or stewardships and more about receiving accounts of them. Can you almost hear the hint of what we read back in section 58? Where it's like, why are you coming to me to ask what you should be doing? Don't be a slothful or an unwise servant. Just be anxiously engaged. The power is in you. Be an agent unto yourself. But just report back to me what you've been doing. That would be a cool approach in a ward council or in, a, in bishop interviews or things. Instead of me going to the bishop to say, well, what do you need me to do? Instead, going, using him as a place to return and report and saying, Bishop, this is what I've been doing. Or another approach, here, Bishop, here's what I can be doing. Here's the inventory of my my temporal or spiritual gifts. Here's ways that I can contribute uh, or or be of service. That's all part of the bishop's storehouse too, after all. Now, verse 3 tells us we need to render an account of our stewardship. Verse 4 tells us why. For he who is faithful and wise in time is accounted worthy to inherit the mansions prepared for him of my father. That's the sense behind this, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. Now I can put you in charge of many things. But I do love the two adjectives that he uses. You who have been faithful and wise. Elder David A. Bednar has quoted this several times in different venues, but it's a statement from Elder Richard L. Evans. I remember the Quorum of the Twelve uh, generations ago. He said, you know, it's a wonderful thing to be faithful but a much greater thing to be both faithful and competent. Now, we were speaking to a group of youth at the time, and he said, there is no particular virtue in being uninformed, certainly no virtue in ignorance. When young people can acquire the skills, the techniques, and the knowledge of these times, and along with it, have a spiritual commitment and a solid faith and cleanliness of life, there is nothing that you can't achieve. Nothing in righteousness or in reason such a great statement. Great to be faithful. Even better to be faithful and competent. Or as is said here in verse 4, faithful and wise. Perhaps it's worth it for each of us to, to ponder which of those two are we, is our weak spot. I have all the talent and, and wisdom and, and intellectual gifts or, or abilities to do anything the Lord asks me. I just don't do a very good job of doing what he says. Well, then work on your faithfulness. Or vice versa. I'll do anything the God that God asks. I'm just not sure if I have much to offer. Well then, seek earnestly the best gifts, develop those talents, become wise and competent. Ultimately, the goal is to become both. Verse five, verily I say unto you, the elders of the church in this part of my vineyard shall render an account of their stewardship unto the bishop, who shall be appointed of me in this part of my vineyard. We're starting to see some geographic boundaries here. You go to your bishop. We're not ward hopping to find an easier person to confess to. Uh, We go to our bishop to receive our stewardships, to render an account of those stewardships. These things shall be had on record to be handed over unto the bishop in Zion. We saw some preliminary hints that there would ultimately be a presiding bishop in last week's material. Well, here we're starting to get a hint also that, well, that presiding bishop will be at the headquarters in Zion. And if there does need to be one kind of central place where that you can have on record all the stewardship, whatever part of the vineyard they might be serving in, well, that's going to be in Zion. In verse 7, And the duty of the bishop shall be made known by the commandments which have been given and the voice of the conference. There we see a balance between past and present, between the commandments you've already been given and the voice of the conference as you discuss it now. It's kind of the balance between Scripture and Revelation or Iron Rod and Leahona, what commandments have you already received? Straight from God. And then how about you and the voice of the conference? Again, there's the horizontal coupled with the vertical. Are you counseling together in your counsels? Verse 8, we then see it specific. Now, verily I say unto you, my servant Newell K. Whitney is the man who shall be appointed and ordained unto this power. This is the will of the Lord your God, your Redeemer. Even so, Amen. So that concludes the first of the three revelations that come together to form this section. Brother Whitney, you're now Bishop Whitney. Your store is becoming the store, namely the storehouse, the bishop's storehouse, and you are the bishop. Who better to be able to, function, to, to preside over the, the temporal affairs of the church? Someone who's shown such mastery of temporal affairs themselves. Bishop Whitney was awesome. Now, best of all, he was not just wise, there's that, but he, he so desperately wanted to be faithful. He was so good at his temporal affairs. He wanted to be good in his spiritual responsibilities. Just like B- Bishop Partridge, an, an, another Israelite in whom there was no guile. Brother Whitney was amazing. But he was also so humble. In fact, when Joseph gives, receives this revelation and says, Well, there you go. Bishop Whitney said to Joseph, I cannot see a bishop in myself, but if you say it's the Lord's will, I'll try. So humble on his part. I can't see. I look in the mirror, the looking glass, as we said back in the day, and I don't see a bishop. Well, Joseph could have said, well, when you you go to Zion, do you see Zion yet? No, don't look with the natural eyes and don't look for the present time. See Zion the way the Lord sees it. See yourself the way the Lord sees you. And how does he see you? He sees you as a bishop. And then Joseph says, but don't take my word for it. He said, go and ask Father for yourself. Wow, that's so beautiful how personal that, that is. That re- reference to God shows the relationship that Joseph Smith had to him, that he'd been developing ever since seeing him in vision as a 14-year-old. Go and ask, Father, for yourself. Well, Bishop Whitney did exactly that. He went out and prayed, and he said, I heard a voice speaking to my soul that said, Thy strength is in me. And that's all the reassurance that Bishop Whitney needed. You're right. I'm not wise enough, I'm not, but I'll be faithful, and I know the Lord will be with me. His strength became Bishop Whitney's. And that seems to be the reassurance there in verse 8 as well. When poor Bishop Whitney couldn't see himself as a bishop, well, if it's the Lord's will, I'll try. Well, it is the Lord's will. This is the will of the Lord your God, your Redeemer. Hold to that. And he did. The most important sustaining vote any of us ever receives when we receive a new calling is not shown by a hand held in sacrament meeting. All in favor, any opposed, No, the most important sustaining vote is the one we receive from God himself when he manifests unto us in some way that it's his will that we've been called and his strength that will follow the calling. Now verse 9, the second of the three revelations follows. The word of the Lord, in addition to the law which has been given, making known the duty of the bishop who has been ordained unto the church in this part of the vineyard, which is verily this, now, I'm sure that Bishop Whitney is thrilled. It's like, okay, I'm going to do it. I know it's your will. I still don't know exactly what I'm doing. Oh, well, just hold your horses. Here it comes. Here's the duty of the bishop. Verse 10, to keep the Lord's storehouse, to receive the funds of the church in this part of the vineyard. So again, it's geographically based. It's just this part of the vineyard. Bishop Partridge has the other part of the vineyard, and there will be other bishops that have their parts of the vineyard too. But primarily, it's to keep the Lord's storehouse. Now, some of that is receiving funds in 10. In 11, some of it is to take an account of the elders, as before has been commanded, and to administer to their wants, who shall pay for that which they receive in as much as they have wherewith to pay. So, this is church welfare. It's administering to people's needs. But also, even there, it's hey, if they can pay for what they receive, then, then do it. That's on the consecrating end of things. Ask not what your ward can do for you, ask what you can do for your ward or for your bishop, or for the church itself. Verse 12, That this also may be consecrated to the good of the church, to the poor and the needy. Any who are able to contribute, able to give, that will end up helping others too. That actually reminds me, it's interesting to see among the principles of church welfare, rather than just it being the the dole, that we're just giving out things, and ended up sapping people's self-respect and self-sufficiency in the process, yeah, So often that's government welfare. But when you have boots on the ground in every part of the vineyard, I think that's the downfall of, of government welfare. It's just, well, we have everybody's you know, social security number or bank account on file through the IRS, and so we'll just send out all these kinds of things. Or there's a natural disaster, and we'll just FEMA will show up and start passing out debit cards. Because there's no time, and there's not enough people there to know. They're, they're called unto them, but they're not of them. They don't know the situation on the ground and who needs how much and what and and what can they contribute. So it's just kind of a one size fits all mass approach. I mean, the government is trying to be faithful in meeting people's needs, but it's not always very wise in the approach that they take to it. Again, just it would require a massive amount of, of manpower to be able to do that. Well, in the Lord system, every geographic ward has a bishop. Boots on the ground. Unto and of. They know the situation. How much do you need? Oh, you don't need any help? Well, bless you. Because now what we could have given to you will go to someone who desperately needs it. Oh, in fact, you have something you can contribute? All the better. And best of all, and this applies borrowing from 11, to those who can pay for what they receive as well as for those who cannot. At least can't pay in money. Part of the magic of church welfare is a recognition that everyone has gifts. And that even though you might not have temporal gifts that you can contribute right now, there are other ways that you can, that you can participate in this consecration, in this establishing of Zion. What can you offer? Whether that's through service or, or paying it forward, not paying it back. We don't pay back fast offerings if we've been in need but we can pay them forward to other people in need elsewhere. And that's the sense I get from verse 12. We want all of these things to be consecrated to the good of the church, to the poor and the needy. And even when the poor and the needy are receiving, they have so much to give back as well. And it's a recognition of their humanity and of their dignity and of their desire to contribute that we can call upon them to do just that. Such a beautiful preservation of self respect by following those principles. In 13, he who hath not wherewith to pay, an account shall be taken and handed over to the Bishop of Zion, who shall pay the debt out of that which the Lord shall put into his hands. So there's a sense that there are general church funds that can be used to meet the needs on the local level if local needs outweigh local contributions. That happens in in fast offerings all the time. If there's needs in a local level, well, how much local contribution has there been? Is there enough to meet their own needs? Well, not. If not, well, then the state can help contribute. If not, then the general church funds, the the bishop in Zion, he can help pay, pay those debts out of that which the Lord has put into his hands. And I do love that he said that the Lord has put into his hands. Remember, the Lord wants to participate in the consecration too. I will consecrate these lands. I mean, I did create the earth after all. So just trusting that it will come, and it does. The same is true of missionaries. My stake produces a lot more missionaries, full-time missionaries than it needs. So whether it's a net gain or a net loss, the, the, the assets and the liabilities, it all evens out because the Lord's over this. And in verse 14, the labors of the faithful who labor in spiritual things in administering the gospel and the things of the kingdom unto the church and unto the world shall answer the debt unto the bishop in Zion. That's an interesting twist as well. If 13, well, if, if these verses, you know, 10, 11, 12, bishops, wherever they happen to be in the vineyard, meet the needs, the temporal needs of those that, that you're serving. Well, I, I don't have enough to, to, to cover all that. Oh, well, the bishop in Zion will cover that. Well, the poor bishop in Zion is like, well, how am I going to do that? It actually <laughs> reminds me when President, ben, oh, excuse me, President Hinckley, back in, what, 98 or 99 said, you know, we're going to have 100 temples by the year 2000 what a birthday gift to the Lord of multiplying his houses all across the earth and it was like jaw drop like are you serious that's impossible and with smaller temples we we made it possible well I heard from Bishop Burton who was the presiding bishop at the time he was laughing going well yeah when President Hinckley announced we're going to have a hundred temples that's like I don't know 40 or 50 more in just a couple of years the general membership was stoked me I was freaking out going well how how on earth are we going to pay for that I mean, it's my job. I'm the the presiding bishop of the church. Well, where are all those funds going to come from? And it's amazing to me that the Lord does put those things into his hands, but more directly in verse 14, the labors of the faithful, those who labor in spiritual things, those who administer the gospel and all the things of the kingdom unto the church. It's like, wow, don't worry. There are prophets and apostles. There's Uh, presiding bishopric there is a council on the disposition of the tithes for a summer years ago i worked in the curriculum department trying to help create institute some of these new institute courses and just that summer i'd go to the church office building every day and and i was just blown away by all of the different things the church does to help god's children across the earth it's it's mind-blowing and so to see kind of that hinted at in verse 14 it's like don't don't worry even you, Bishop in Zion, if you're how are we going to do this? We we got this. The Lord will provide, and he'll provide through his church. Now, verse 15, thus it cometh out of the church. For according to the law, every man that cometh up to Zion must lay all things before the bishop in Zion. Now, we're going to get back to more specific issues about Bishop Partridge down in Zion, compared to Bishop Whitney up in, in Kirtland. And ultimately, the consecration is going to take place there, and since that's going to be the ultimate gathering place, as people come there, they need to be able to lay all their things before the bishop in Zion consecration, stewardship, all of that. In our day, because it's less about consecration and stewardship, it's more about worthiness, and it's a judge in Israel, not one who's just responsible for our temporal affairs. But that's part of it. Do I lay all things before him? And I would suggest that all things includes not just the bad, but the good, not just there to confess our sins but also to just rejoice in the experiences that we're having with God's hand in our life. I love that when, at times in bishoprics I've served in, when when someone is released or someone is called, and especially when they're released, and just to ask them, what did the Lord teach you through this service? And for them to lay out before the bishopric those kinds of blessings, the hand of God in their lives, the growth and, and progress in their own spirituality, it's amazing. It actually reminds me of, Uh, I get students coming to my office all the time who are wrestling with faith crisis kinds of issues. And we have those kinds of conversations and and they're important and they're good. But I remember one young woman, uh, one of my my students came in. I was like gearing up for, okay, so what's your question and and where are you struggling and, and how can I help? I mean, I never deal with the moral issues. That that I always pass those on to the bishop. But uh, if it's you know something I can help with historically or theologically or doctrinally or you know whatever, then I'm here for you. And I was just ready to go, and and she was like, oh no no no, I, I'm not in faith crisis. In fact, I'm just I'm doing awesome, and I just wanted you to be able to meet me. I just loved it. it was like, wow, this girl is amazing, and she's given me the chance to get to know her, and it was totally worth it. And in fact, it was like. Ah, not everyone needs the kind of of drastic remedies that that I'm trying to help them with. She's just doing awesome. And so to come and lay even those things before a bishop in Zion, I think is a really beautiful thing. Now let's get back to the specifics here for Bishop Whitney and for Bishop Partridge. Verse 16, Now verily I say unto you that as every elder in this part of the vineyard must give an account of his stewardship unto the bishop in this part of the vineyard, So if you're serving here, then it's the bishop here that you're reporting to. Then, verse 17, a certificate from the judge or bishop in this part of the vineyard can be given to you so you can take it unto the bishop in Zion. That's what renders every man acceptable and answereth all things for an inheritance and to be received as a wise steward and as a faithful laborer. Verse 18, otherwise he shall not be accepted of the bishop of Zion. Now what the Lord's trying to do here is to solve the problems that we've been seeing the last few weeks about people jumping the gun. People that don't want to act on the land in Kirtland as for years and would rather just head down to Zion in Missouri since that's the, the ultimate gathering place. I'd rather be on the front end. In fact, I'd rather be on the receiving end of stewardships rather than the giving end of consecrations. And so those who are are, are beelining it to the Zion place before they become the Zion people This is trying to solve that problem. And you can just picture Bishop Partridge going, thank you, Lord, for clarifying this. Essentially what it is, is you're here in Kirtland, you're somewhere in the Ohio area, then Bishop Whitney is your bishop. And as you consecrate to him, as you live a Zion life and and show that you have been developing this Zion attitude, that you're now ready for a Zion address, then guess what? Bishop Whitney in Ohio can fill out a certificate, a recommend, we would call it in our day, so that then you are being given permission. Remember Joseph was told before, Joseph will be able to discern who's ready to go. Well, the bishop can now be part of this process as well on on the temporal side of things. Uh, They fill out this certificate, and it makes that man, that family, acceptable and answereth all the things, so that then they can take that certificate, that recommend, from their bishop in Ohio to their new bishop in Missouri and say, I'm, I've been called to come. I mean, in a way, that still happens today, where before a bishop gives a calling to a new person that's moved into his ward, the bishop calls that family's or that person's old bishop. Is there anything that I should know? This is the passing of the baton. We don't want anyone to fall through the cracks. And if there's things that a bishop has been working on with a, an individual or a family in the previous ward, well, it helps the new bishop to know, oh, then I can pick up where you left off and help as well. So, Saints in Ohio, before you're, you head down to Missouri at the, at the prophet's call, make sure you get the certificate from the bishop. Verse 19, Now, verily, I say unto you, let every elder who shall give an account unto the bishop of the church in this part of the vineyard be recommended by the church or churches in which he labors, that he may render himself and his accounts approved in all things. You see, it'd be hard for for Bishop Whitney to know everything that's going on, especially when right now there's only two bishops in the church. And when it talks about going to, to churches, there's branches kind of scattered all over the place. Yes, they're trying to gather, but that takes a while. And as missionaries are being sent on missions all over the place, you get these small pockets of saints wherever they happen to be. And it's kind of these branches all over the place, even though they don't have their own bishop yet. I mean, we're getting organized, but we're not that organized yet. Especially when the, the gathering is such an important thing to these two main headquarters. Well, how's poor Bishop Whitney supposed to know if somebody's in an outlying branch somewhere else? Well, he can get word from the church or churches in which that elder had been laboring. It makes me think of areas in the mission field or callings that I've had or just opportunities I've had to be, I don't know, used in some in some part of the Lord's vineyard and wondering, did I make a difference there? Again, like it's not about me and do they remember me, but rather... Have I left any kind of evidence that I labored as best as I could in that part of the vineyard? I want to be able to give an account that is approvable, that I tried. That if I'm more than just an extra in somebody else's life, I tried to help them in some way. I tried to leave them better than I found them. That way they have a, a say in my recommendation. So don't seek the spotlight. On the one hand, but don't be invisible either. Make a contribution wherever you happen to be. In verse 20, again, let my servants who are appointed as stewards over the literary concerns of my church have claim for assistance upon the bishop or bishops in all things. Remember last week, we started meeting the, what would become known as the literary firm. Well, they have spiritual things to offer. It's kind of a white-collar uh, job, when at that time it was the blue-collar jobs that got all the, the praise and attention. But they need to be, uh, have stewardships and consecration and responsibility as well. And when they need help from the bishop, then offer it to them. In 21, why do they need it? That the revelations may be published, and go forth unto the ends of the earth, that they also may obtain funds which shall benefit the church in all things. That was what we learned last week. Those called to the literary firm were made stewards of the revelations that were given. And an account of their stewardship would be required of them. Just like an account of our stewardship of what we've done with God's word will someday be, be called on from, from us. Verse 22, that they also may render themselves approved in all things and be accounted as wise stewards. So, whether your stewardship is blue collar or white collar, whether it's in ministering or administering, whether it's spiritual or temporal, whatever vineyard, part of the vineyard you happen to be in, we all want to be able to render ourselves approved in all things. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. 23. Now behold, this shall be an ensample or an example for all the extensive branches of my church, in whatsoever land they shall be established. And now I make an end of my sayings. Amen. So that concludes the second of the three revelations. And it's just saying, hey, we, we, we're starting with a bishop in Zion. We're continuing with a bishop in Kirtland. But this is just an example that we're going to set in all the extensive branches of my church. You get a sense that the Lord is looking to the future. Other bishops, plural, he said earlier. And so we've been following this example, this end sample, ever since. Now, amen to that one. And then this final little revelation, just three verses, 24, 5, 6. A few words in addition to the laws of the kingdom respecting the members of the church. They that are appointed by the Holy Spirit to go up unto Zion, and they who are privileged to go up unto Zion. So remember, it's a privilege to be called there, to be appointed. It's not a right. So you don't jump the gun. You don't call yourself to go. You you show yourself a wise steward, a consecrating saint, you get a recommendation from your congregation, your church. They know the kind of person you've been. You can show it to the bishop where you happen to be. He'll fill out a a certificate, a recommend for you, then to be able to go and take to Bishop Partridge down in Zion to be able to receive your inheritance there. It's all appointed by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that discerns, and it's a privilege to be able to go. Verse 25, Then let them carry up unto the bishop a certificate from three elders of the church, or a certificate from the bishop. And otherwise, 26, he who shall go up unto the land of Zion shall not be accounted as a wise steward. This is also an example. Amen. So this is the warning to those who are, are trying to jump the gun. This is when you show up and, and say, Oh, I'm here. And they're like, Well, oh, where's your, where's your uh, wedding invitation? And you're like, Oh, <laughs> Yeah, the Lord doesn't want wedding crashers here, especially when it's the marriage of the king's son. Okay, that parable. We have to have been invited, and we have to prove ourselves faithful and wise in our stewardships. I wonder, too, if we were to expand this. Is this good caution for those who are so focused on the destination at the expense of the journey? Remember Zion Place versus Zion People? Zion Location versus Zion Lifestyle? My wife and I always joke when we're on car trips that it's, my, we, it's division of labor. Uh, I'm kind of the nerd in the, in the companionship and she's the free spirit that everybody loves. And so the, the, my job is to make sure we get there. My focus is destination. I'm checking time and, and how we got to keep the speed. And, you know, and my, my wife, on the other hand, is, her job is to make sure people actually enjoy the journey. Without her, oh, we'd get there. But no one would want to no, no sign up for the trip. Without me, Everyone would love the trip, but we'd never actually arrive at the destination. So my wife and I, we prove contraries. Uh, and, and hopefully the kids enjoy the trip and arrive at, at our ultimate destination. But I wonder sometimes those who, nope, it's all about there. I mean, the kind that are like me, unfortunately, on, on road trips. I just want to get to Zion. Ah, don't short circuit the process of preparing to go. It's like those elders that were traveling too fast upon the waters. And missing out on opportunities to bless lives on either riverbank. Same kind of thing. There's a reason for this stronghold in Kirtland. There's a reason for whatever stage of life you happen to be in right now, as difficult as it might feel. There's reasons where you're, that you're called to serve in certain places or not called to serve in others. And don't short-circuit that. Be a wise servant. Follow this example. Now, if you've forgiven me for jumping around so far and going from 71 about the JST and then 73 to resuming the JST and then back to 72 to, to meet some church leaders in the meantime, if you've forgiven me for, for going out of order, can I presume upon your grace? <laughs> can, will, you, will you let me keep going down that path? Because skipping to section 75, let's stay on the same subject uh, of, of church organization and calling people to stewardships and to responsibilities and to missions. That's what section 75 is about. Then we'll go back and we'll finish today in section 74. So we're going 71, 73, 72, 75, 74. Sorry, I missed that day in math where we learned to count in order. But if you'll jump ahead to section 75, a month or so has passed. It's another conference. They've come together and they're wondering, what do we do? There's some more church organizational things. Joseph Smith here is ordained president of the high priesthood when he was declared prophet, seer, translator, apostle, elder back at, you know, on April 6, 1830. But here, as we're understanding more and more about Aaronic versus Melchizedek and temporal versus spiritual and the sons of Aaron and and, and bishops and presiding bishops, well, where does this leave Joseph Smith? Well, he is the president of the high priesthood. We st- We still don't have yet a first presidency or a quorum of the 12 line upon line they're they're learning but as more and more people are are called to responsibilities or offices in the priesthood they want to know what that entails what am i supposed to do and so section 75 is for them verse 1 verily verily I say unto you I who speak even by the voice of my spirit even alpha and omega your lord and your god here's who I am well here's who you are verse 2 Hearken, O ye who have given your names to go forth to proclaim my gospel and to prune my vineyard. So this is for all of you who are ready to go out and share the good word. To prune the vineyard. Interesting verb there, to prune it. In Jacob 5, there are all kinds of good things that you have to do to help help your vineyard, your olive trees. Uh, then it was dig and dung and, and water and nourish and scatter and gather and graft, all these things but also to prune. Now, to prune the vineyard is to cut back in some areas so that the strength of the soil and the sunlight and the water and nutrients can then be channeled into more specific areas. Rather than have a thousand tiny little grapes, let's have a hundred really good-sized ones. That's what pruning is for. And what I love about that is, remember that word we just saw, practicable. Well, what's really practicable? Where should we be channeling our energies? And to prune the vineyard is helping people see where their strength should be channeled. Can we cut away some of the cares of the world? Can we wean ourselves off of Babylon so that our, our time and our efforts can be, can be pushed in the direction of Zion? I think there's a lot of pruning that we all need to go through. In verse 3, Behold, I say unto you that it is my will that you should go forth and not tarry. Neither be idle, but labor with your might. There were idlers in Zion that he chastised a few revelations ago. So you've got the green light. Uh, Don't make me honk from behind you. Okay, Hit the gas. We're ready to move forward. And what do we do? Verse 4, We lift up our voices as with the sound of a trump. There's loud and clear for you. Proclaiming the truth according to the revelations and commandments which I have given you. You've got the word, now send it forth. Verse 5, And thus, if ye are faithful, ye shall be laden with many sheaves, and crowned with honor and glory and immortality and eternal life. You see, it's my work and glory to bring to pass your immortality and eternal life. And one of my favorite ways to bring it forth in you is to help you bring it forth in others. As you are faithful and wise, as you share the gospel with that voice of the trump, the sheaves will come. You'll be laden with them. The field is white, all ready to harvest, thrust in your sickle with your might. Lay up in store, bring the sheaves to the, to the garners of God. And if you labor all your days in doing so, how great shall be your joy with them in the kingdom of my Father, where all of you, both giver and receiver, both missionary and convert, both servant and served. No wonder you rejoice together and understand each other. No wonder both are edified because both sides get honor and glory and immortality and eternal life. That's the goal here. Now, he's going to be more specific as far as individuals are concerned. In verse 6, Verily I say unto my servant William E. McClellan, I revoke the commission which I gave unto him to go unto the eastern countries. And instead, verse 7, I give unto him a new commission and a new commandment in the which I, the Lord, chasten him for the murmurings of his heart. This always seems to be the case with William McClellan. Uh, good man, but with but a weak man, like all of us. And some things that God commends him for and some things that God chastises him for. I mean, we see the justice and mercy side by side in verse 8. He sinned. I'm calling him out. There's the justice. Nevertheless, I forgive him. There's the mercy. And say unto him again, go ye into the south countries. In a previous revelation, the Lord already told us, I command and revoke and have to adjust on the fly and change assignments. Why? Because of agency and its misuse. And William McClellan had, had made some mistakes. He had murmured in his heart and he needed to be chastened for that. In fact, remember, he's a widower by now. And, and one of the things that kept him from, a, from a, accepting the mission call that he was originally given was he had his eye on a sister uh, and was hoping to, to, to get a job and earn some money so he could be able to afford to marry her rather than go off and serve a mission and, and preach the gospel. Makes you a little worried about the caution he'd been given back in 66 about don't commit adultery. Uh, that's a, a temptation you've been troubled with. I mean, where are your eyes focused? To go courting for a sister or to go converting for for Latter day Saints. Well we'll end the we'll we'll take back this mission call and but you've and, and ch- chasten you, but you've sinned, you've repented, you're forgiven, and I'll send you somewhere else. On a bigger picture issue, it is important that each of us understand that those those additional opportunities can await any of us. I've talked with people that have felt like I failed God because I was called to do something and then I, I rejected it. Or I knew I should have accepted this calling or gone on a mission or whatever it was and I, and I didn't do it. And they feel like they're forever trapped by their missed opportunities and they live the rest of their lives with regret. Or even worse, they just throw in the towel and bag the whole thing. Not knowing that, in, despite our sins... God can forgive us and say unto us again, go ye into the south countries. Now, yes, I originally said go east. And that, that opportunity has come and gone. But that doesn't mean that all opportunities are gone for you. I tried to teach this last year in the Book of Mormon when we talked about 4th Nephi. And all this destruction that took place that leveled all kinds of cities. Some were burned. Some of the inhabitants were blown away in the whirlwind. Others w- w- fell into the sea or were crushed by a mountain or swallowed up in the earth now there's two different types of destructions then some cities destroyed could be rebuilt well it just burned down just rebuild it now the city that was that fell into the sea yeah that one we're not going to be able to rebuild the one that was swallowed up in the earth well, it's it's gone for good but does that mean that, it's, that civilization for the Nephites is over? No. They just built a city somewhere else. I love that detail. Where a destroyed city can be rebuilt in the same location, go for it. But when it can't be, for whatever reason, just move forward and build elsewhere. If you missed an opportunity and you can't go east anymore, you can't serve that mission or, or in that calling, then repent receive forgiveness, and move forward. This time it's South, great, I'll go South. You can still make a masterpiece of your life, which is exactly what the Lord's trying to do. Now he's going to keep calling more missionaries and sending them forth with with duties explained. Verse 9, let my servant Luke Johnson go with him. That's who's William McClellan's new companion is going to be. And proclaim the things which I have commanded them. So open your mouth, it shall be filled. You'll know what to teach. It's the things I've taught you. Verse 10, calling on the name of the Lord for the comforter, which shall teach them all things that are expedient for them. Such important advice for anyone called to serve the Lord. Pray to God for the companionship of the Holy Ghost. If the comforter is with you, then you'll know what to do and where to go and who to help and how to help them. In verse 11, praying always that they faint not. Inasmuch as they do this, they're faithful and wise. I will be with them even unto the end. You see, it's not just a duo that I'm after in these mission companionships. It's always a trio. If you'll have me, if you'll pray for the Comforter, if you'll pray and not faint, if you'll be faithful and wise, I'll join you. Verse 12, Behold, this is the will of the Lord your God concerning you. Even so, amen. Now from 13 through 17, The Lord then calls a bunch of other missionaries and puts them into companionships. Now, a lot of these missionaries we've never heard of. And that's okay. They were known to the Lord. He calls them by name. And what I love about these verses, if you read 13 through 17, all these men are called, put together, and then, hey, some of you go south, some of you go east, some of you go west. The Lord is sending us forth. There are opportunities all around us. And over and over, he asks them to be faithful, And he promises them his own companionship. I'll be with you throughout it all. One specific thing that's also given them is verse 16. He who is faithful, that kept coming up, shall overcome all things and shall be lifted up at the last day. Beautiful promise for anyone serving the Lord. Now in 18, we get back to general instruction for all these companionships. Yea, let all those take their journey as I have commanded them. Going from house to house and from village to village and from city to city. Now, we've seen the city to city stuff before and the village to village stuff, even the synagogue to synagogue. But here, as far as I can tell, is the first time we saw a house to house approach. And that's really where the, the action is. And as much as there are parents in Zion, remember, that's the, really the presiding authority and the, and the central unit of the church that I'm after. So go house to house. And verse 19, whatsoever house ye enter and they receive you, leave your blessing upon that house. Always leave them better than you found them. In verse 20, in whatsoever house ye enter and they receive you not, then depart speedily from that house and shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. Now, in a previous revelation, they said, don't do that in front of them, okay? Do that in secret lest you offend them. But in some ways, it's a matter of, okay, I did the best that I could. But I will say, it better have been the best that we could. You see, 21, he goes on, you shall be filled with joy and gladness, and know this, that in the day of judgment you shall be judges of that house and condemn them. Wait, what? Yeah, 22, it shall be more tolerable for the heathen in the day of judgment than for that house. Therefore, gird up your loins and be faithful, and ye shall overcome all things, and be lifted up at the last day. Even so, amen. It's like, ooh, that's... That seems a little harsh there in 20 and 20, or 21 and 22. Now, perhaps this is, I mean, he talked about preaching to the congregations of the wicked. There's been all kinds of opposition and persecution taking place, and that will yet increase. So I mean, maybe there needed to be this kind of language for that immediate set of missionaries. You're going to face all kinds of rejection, and they did. But gird up your loins, be faithful. You'll overcome all things, including the opposition that they're throwing your way. You'll be lifted up at the last day, even if they're trying constantly to drag you down in this one. But I do want to be a little careful here. And part of that, this is a feeling of guilt on my part. Because in my younger, more zealous and less loving days, I was a type of missionary, uh, before my mission particularly in high school, that could have used uh, some reins, uh, that could have been said. yeah, speak the truth. Oh, I know you do that, but can you do it in love? Or the counsel that that Alma gives to his son Shiblon: "Bridle all your passions so that you can be filled with love." Oh, you're passionate about the gospel. You want everyone to join it. You want to, You know that it's true, but you're not very loving. You're kind of kind of bowl them over, uh, and and that's not very healthy for for them or for you. So the danger here is is coupling too quickly the beginning of 21, when he's talking about those who have rejected you, hey, but you can be filled with joy and gladness because you get to judge them and condemn them. And it's like, what? So don't be sad that they rejected you. Be glad that someday you get to reject them. Ha ha. Uh, And and unfortunately, I get a sense sometimes from young, overly zealous and underloving missionaries that it's like, oh, they slammed the door on my face. Well, fine. Someday you'll know what it feels like when you're knocking on heaven's door, and I get to be there to slam it in your face. Now, that's a horrible attitude to take out into the mission field where you're trying to love people into an understanding of the God of love himself. So please make sure that you keep the punctuation marks in mind when he says in verse 21, you shall be filled with joy and gladness. Semicolon. Look, can we pause the thought for a moment? We're not going to end the sentence. We're still talking about missionary work. But hey, no matter how much people reject you, understand that you can still be filled with joy and gladness because you have given them an opportunity to decide for themselves. It's your actions, not their reactions, after all, that I'll judge you about. But speaking of judgment, and let's shift gears a little bit, keep the joy and gladness part on what you've done. The other side know that in the day of judgment, you'll be among the judges of that house. My perspective on that phrase has completely changed. As I was forced to ponder as a missionary, did I really give them the best possible opportunity? I think sometimes we too cavalierly think, well, everyone gets an opportunity to hear the gospel in this life or the next life. And man, I knocked on a lot of doors in Puerto Rico. And so all of those people had their opportunity. And when they slammed the door or they said, no, I'm busy, whatever, well, that's, that was their chance and that's it. And I'm like, seriously? The more I think about it, it's like, I wonder if I gave anybody a real, full, legitimate opportunity to accept the gospel. I used to have, there was one elder, Elder Mortensen, he and I were never companions, but we'd go on these trade-offs together that were just life-changing for me. I loved, I loved those days. And I still remember the, the one conversation that we had about what constitutes a real opportunity to accept the gospel to the point that it would be no different if they got another chance in the spirit world for them to say, oh, no, I understand it now just as well as I did when Elder Halverson and Elder Mortensen knocked on my door. (laughs) No, I wonder how many of them, when they get to the other side and the celestial missionaries, the spirit world missionaries come and teach them, I wonder how many Puerto Ricans there will be that go, wait, wait, was this what Elder Halverson, I mean, this is ringing vague bells. Is this what Elder Halverson was trying to say to me? Man, his Spanish stunk. I really wish I would have understood that. Or maybe it was, I wish he'd had the spirit with him more powerfully that day. That there hadn't been friction with his companion, or homesickness, or or sense of inadequacy, or whatever it would have been that had interfered with it. But I, I, now, I, I mean, as a as an overly zealous missionary, I would have thought, oh yeah, when I get, when I pass the li- when I'm going to the celestial kingdom and I pass all these people on the line towards the terrestrial, these old Puerto Ricans that rejected me, and I go, hey, see how it feels? No. It won't be me judging them. Now I fear that it will be they judging me. And looking at me with regret on their part, saying, do you have any idea how, how much the gospel could have changed me? I wish you would have had the Spirit with you or tried harder to speak my language or to, to convey truth in a way that would have been understandable to me. I wish you would have come back a second try, I, would have, I wish you would have kept tracking down the street. I didn't, even know, I didn't even know what I was missing or saying no to. I thought you guys were in the, from the FBI or something. I mean, I don't know. Whatever the reason, it's worth, for, it's worth it for each of us to really ponder, how many full opportunities have I really given someone? Remember, it's not the activity, it's the outcome. It's not parents teaching or missionaries tracked in. It's children understanding, it's investigators getting a real chance to decide on truth presented in its purity. I don't plan on passing judgment on any Puerto Rican. I do worry that some Puerto Ricans may end up passing judgment on me. And that's not just about my full-time mission. It's about all the, the several missions I've been performing ever since. I hope I am giving people real opportunities, because the judgment will go both ways. Now pick up in verse twenty three Again, thus saith the Lord unto you, O ye elders of my church, who have given your names that you might know His will concerning you. So like anybody want to know something from God? Yep, put my name down on that list. You've given your name, you're you're asking for this. verse twenty four behold, I say unto you, that it is the duty of the church to assist in supporting the families. Of those and also to support the families of those who are called and must needs be sent unto the world to proclaim the gospel unto the world is there more that we can be doing to support the missionaries serving among us yes inviting the elders or sisters over for dinner is great yes contributing to the the local missionary fund that helps members of your own ward that want to go out and serve some would-be missionaries have all the, the money and all the time but none of the interest there are others in the world that have all the interest and desire, but don't have the money and we can contribute, but also keep an eye on the families of those missionaries that are out serving. Is there anything we can do to support them? That's the idea of verse 24. That was especially true back in those days when it was usually the husband and father of the family who was being sent off somewhere. Well, can the church pick up the slack and help take the place of that husband or father? as far as temporal needs are concerned. In 25, wherefore I the Lord give unto you this commandment that ye obtain places for your families inasmuch as your brethren are willing to open their hearts. I can't imagine being a missionary in those days and thinking, okay, I'm gonna go, but how on earth am I gonna help my wife and children while I'm away? And so here's the counsel, before you go, I mean, 24 is on the giving end Members should be proactive and see who's, need, who's in need. But also, on the asking side of things, you missionaries that are going forth, do your best to find, to, to set things up for your family's sake in advance. That can, can you help watch out for my kids while I'm gone? If my wife's ever hungry, c- c- could my wife and your wife remain really close while I'm out in the mission field? Will you just watch over the people that matter most to me? As I'm out trying to watch out for people who matter a lot to God. If we're going to be Zion, we're all in this thing together. Verse 26 let all such as can obtain places for their families and support of the church for them not fail to go into the world, whether to the east or to the west or to the north or to the south. So if you are able to meet your family's needs, what's keeping you from going out and serving? I mean others are going out and serve when they can't meet their family's needs and so we're just going to re- they're going to do the best they can and line things up but they're also going to re- rely upon the generosity and goodness and proactivity of of others in the church there seems to be a suggestion there that if we're not serving and I don't just mean full-time missions but if we're not making a difference somewhere east, west, north or south man we better have a pretty good reason if nothing's holding us back then I hope we're not holding ourselves back. In 27, let them ask. They shall receive. Let them knock. It shall be opened unto them. And it shall be made known from on high, even by the Comforter, whither they shall go. After all, the mission call in verse 26 was pretty vague. You are hereby assigned to labor in the north-south-east-west mission. Uh, Can you be a little more specific? Well, yeah, the Holy Ghost will let you know. So pray for that companionship. In 28, again, verily I say unto you that every man who is obliged to provide for his own family, let him provide. And he shall in no wise lose his crown and let him labor in the church. That is so important too. Because in 26, it's the suggestion of, hey, if you got nothing holding you back, you ought to be servant. But in 28, it's the reassurance if there is something holding you back. It's okay. I, I honor you for this. And so if you need to stay and provide for your own family, then do that. You're not losing your crown that way either. But I mean, while you're home, go ahead and labor in the church. <laughs> 28. It's kind of like, remember a couple weeks ago when it was there were two farms and you sell yours, but you keep yours? It's like you go to Zion, you stay here in Kirtland, you give the stewardships, you receive the consecrations. You go out on a mission. You stay home on a mission. You hope that there'll be people to provide for your family, and you provide for yours, and hopefully for others as well. There really is eye and foot and hand and heart and different body parts in the members of the body of Christ. And the head can't say to the foot, I don't need you, because we all need each other. There are crowns enough for everyone. How do we know what we should be doing? We seek the Spirit. And the Comforter will let us know whither we shall go and whether we shall go. And as long as we're following the Spirit's guidance, then there's a crown for you as well. Whichever side of those divides you're on, verse 29, let every man be diligent in all things. And the idler shall not have place in the church, except he repent and mend his ways. There's still that mercy always waiting in the wings, but there's justice leading the way. Whether you come or go, be diligent. Whether you give or you receive, don't be idle. Make a contribution. Make a difference. And then the revelation ends from 30 to 36, calling all kinds of additional companionships together and sending them forth. My favorite phrase, by the way, in those last six or seven verses is the one that comes at the end of verse 30. You could apply it to all the others too, but speaking of this specific companionship, Simeon Carter and Emer Harris, let them be united in the ministry. I loved all my companions my patriarchal blessing promised that I'd have amazing companions in the mission field. And that came true 15 out of 15 times. And I think what made us so tight and such such great fellow servants is that we felt united in the ministry. Now, with all that in mind, I would add what the Lord kept adding earlier in this revelation. And in so many revelations that we've already studied, with whom should we be united in this ministry? our companion, of course, but also with the Lord. I want to be with you. And inasmuch as you are faithful in keeping my commandments, in praying always so you don't faint, in seeking the Spirit's guidance, then I'll be with you too. Can you imagine the feeling of being united in the ministry with Christ? That is the ultimate goal. Now, to finish this week's lesson, we need to go back to section 74. Short, seven verses. I, I, I guess I feel more justified in doing it out of order because it already is out of order. We really don't know exactly when this revelation came. It's an explanation of a verse of Scripture from 1 Corinthians 7, 14. It actually has to do with being united in the ministry in a way. It has to do with marriages, specifically mixed religion, mixed-faith marriages, Jewish and Christian in this context, but it could relate to anything. But we don't know exactly when or the circumstances behind its reception. Some have suggested oh, well, 71 was stop the JST and 73 was restart the JST, so 74, he must have been working on the JST. But according to most historical evidence, this revelation was probably received considerably earlier. So rather than a JST revelation, we'll see plenty of those. In fact, Quick plug for next week. I hope you're with me. Section 76 is next week, and it is one of the great masterpieces of, of the Doctrine and Covenants, of Scripture in general. Six visions Joseph and Sidney Rigdon will have. The three degrees of glory will be spelled out. It is an epic revelation. So hope you come back for that one. And that one did literally grow out of their experience working on the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. I'll explain all of that next week. So we often assume, oh, well, 74 must be the same thing. Or they're working on the Bible, and boom, they, they run across 1 Corinthians 7.14, and they scratch their head going, yeah, this one's off. We, we need to fix this. Well, the interesting thing about, about that verse, 1 Corinthians 7.14, is it's the same in the King James as it is in the Joseph Smith translation. In other words, it was not mistranslated at all, but it was misunderstood or perhaps misinterpreted. And especially if it was, it was received earlier, closer to the, the organization of the church, where all these new members are being baptized into it. And remember that some are wondering, do we have to be re-baptized if I've already been baptized elsewhere? That's a question on their minds. Well, what about infant baptism? I mean, usually it was people that are so sure that it has to be through the church that salvation comes, because outside the church there is no salvation. The children, I mean, there's uh, people, children are born in sin. There's original sin out there, so a a newborn baby surely must be baptized to cleanse them from it. Or if they die, they're goners. I mean, that was personal for the Smith family since Alvin, the big brother that everybody loved, hadn't been baptized. Since Father Smith, Joseph Smith Sr., isn't really big on organized religion until the ultimate organized religion (laughs) is, is restored to the earth through his son. Anyway, lots of questions about baptism at the time. And 1 Corinthians 7.14 was actually a text that was sometimes used to justify infant baptism because it seems to suggest that little children are unclean. Oh, in which case they must need to be cleansed as close to birth as possible. Well, in the church we know that that's not true doctrine. Joseph Smith learned it very clearly when he translated Moroni chapter 8 in the Book of Mormon where Mormon comes down with some really strong language about, about infant baptism and those that believe in it. That that is robbing Christ of part of his atonement by which he simply cleanses all little children before they reach the age of accountability. That little children are alive in Christ and don't need baptism. That's for those of us that, that know better, that have committed sin and need to be forgiven of it. Little children, that, that's not them. So this revelation, in some ways, is to help clarify that. But what's interesting is, is what it does as a, in a fuller explanation of 1 Corinthians 7.14. Here's the verse as it stands in the King James as well as in the JST. Verse 1, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. So you kind of get a sense there that, hey, if neither parent has the gospel in the home, if neither parent can ensure that a child receives the gospel covenants in their life, then, hey, those children are unclean. But as long as one of them is around to to make sure that baby gets baptized, then, hey, they can be holy. And that's kind of how that verse was used to justify or or validate infant baptism. Now, like I said, we could just go back to Moroni 8 and say, oh, that's that's false doctrine. Uh, And so we're not going to do infant baptism. We're going to do it at the age of eight, when they reach the years of accountability. And so they were doing. But what I love about this revelation is it can apply so much more than just clarifying that, that false doctrine. Especially with, I mean, how did we start today's lesson? Talking about those who are struggling in their faith, people whose minds need to be disabused. Well, there is so much of that happening in the church today. And as I mean, again, it's, it's the Internet, and it's the information age which doubles as the misinformation age. And as I've often warned my students, there are three S's of anti-religious rhetoric, and not just anti-Mormonism, just out there. And one S is sensational. They try to get the shock and awe and just throw it in your face to freak you out. A second S is superficial. They just give you kind of a, a mile wide, and an inch deep. They want to freak you out first, destabilize you. But then don't, don't sink down and, and contextualize things. Don't understand the full story. Just enough to, to freak you out first and then knock the legs out from under you a second. And the third S is it's selective. We're only going to let the lawyer for the prosecution speak. We don't want the lawyers from the defense. We don't want to cross examine witnesses or offer any other uh, evidence. Now, we want to make this a slam dunk case so people will walk across the whole teeter totter and get to the other side and go, nope, I'm out. It's all, it's all false. No proving contraries here, okay? went from all divinity to all humanity, and let's just end it there. And unfortunately, and my heart goes out to you because I hear from many of you whose, whose marriages are, are in such a difficult place because one of the, either your husband or your wife has lost their faith. I often hear it about your children and how can I help my children, but, but oh, it's such, it's a different kind of relationship. We don't divorce our children we don't give up on them because they've they've lost faith or made difficult or or decisions we can't agree with but when it's your spouse that's a different that's a different animal and it's hard what do i do if i know the church is true and my spouse doesn't or they've rejected it and what does that mean for our temple covenants what does it mean for raising our children do i stay what do i do and this verse And the explanation of it here in section 74 is such beautiful counsel that you'll need, if you're in that situation, you'll need to take with not a grain of salt, but rather a huge helping of the Holy Ghost as the Spirit helps you decide how to navigate the situation that you find yourself in. But think about what he just said. The unbelieving husband can still be sanctified by the wife. She's holding on. And if you think about the the iron rod, if, if she is holding on to the iron rod, continually holding fast to it, but with the other hand holding on to her husband who has left the iron rod, well, he's only, what, like two hands away? He's not connected to the rod, but he's connected to someone who is. And that still gives me hope. As long as the prodigal son knew that there was a loving father back at home, As soon as he came to himself, he knew where to go from there. An unbelieving husband can be sanctified by a believing wife. I'm also grateful for the next line. Let's flip the genders. And an unbelieving wife can be sanctified by the husband. It's so interesting how spirituality is gendered and how that gendering changes over time. Poor women. At times they are, they are blasted as the source of all evil because Mother Eve brought, brought the fall into the world. Well, we don't agree with that. But sometimes, like I said, we don't just correct, we overcorrect. And so then we make women, rather than the demonic plague on humanity, we turn her into this paragon of virtue and righteousness. And now it's her responsibility to keep, to keep evil at bay And what's the reality? Quit swinging the pendulum. Just prove the contraries and realize that both man and woman have equal access to the natural man and the natural woman, as well as to the the spiritual man and woman of Christ. We're in this thing together. So don't assume that, oh, well, whenever there's a faith crisis, it's always the husband that leaves the church and the poor wife is left to hold on. I know a lot of situations like that. But I also know of situations where it's the husband holding on to covenants and to Christ and the wife that has left. And, and either way, you, you wonder what, what happens here. Neither faith loss on the one hand nor spiritual strength on the other are gender specific. It can happen to any of us. It goes both ways. I actually love to read this verse, 1 Corinthians 7, 14, in the context of the rest of that chapter because right before it and right after it there's some amazing advice. In 1 Corinthians 7:12 and 13, Paul says, "If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away, and vice versa." And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. My mother-in-law, whom I love, has been very open with people about her experiences Because there's such redemption in her story. Uh, So she's not shy about sharing it. I love her for that. Uh, She left the church. Life was so hard and just wondering where God was throughout it all. and, And she left it all. And one of the first things that her husband asked her after she decided to have her name removed from the records of the church was, Are you planning on leaving the family too? And that was a concern for him. I'm so amazed that he was able to separate the two. And that she was also. Because she said, oh, no, no, no. I'm not planning on divorcing you or leaving the children. Because that's kind of what Paul is getting at. These are two separate decisions. And just because someone's connection with God or Christ or the church has changed, that doesn't automatically require a change in the relationship they have with, with their marriage partner. I think it's really important to keep that in mind. And the way Paul is describing that is, hey, if they've left, if they don't believe the same as you do, but they desire to dwell with you. I mean, I would, I would hope that spirituality is not something that's off the list on the criteria for a, a celestial relationship. But then again, it's not the entire list either. I mean, think about all the dates you went on when you were dating and courting. I mean, I would assume that they weren't all to church or shared scripture study, or going to the temple together. I mean, I would hope that those were included in the list, that you did have some spiritual dates. But if you were to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, just like Jesus, and that describes the growth of a good relationship too, then yes, I hope there were some favor with God dates that you went on, but also some growing in wisdom and stature and favor with man dates also. I mean, we're supposed to be balanced people. Well, ideally, all four wheels are still pumped up as we're going through marriage together. Physical, intellectual, spiritual, social. But if you get a flat tire in the spiritual one, but the other three can keep you moving or maybe just replace it with a donut for, the while, for a while until you can get the real help and, and, and get that, that spare fully inflated again. Can we keep going as a couple? Are there other parts of our relationship that are, that are meaningful? I think what Paul is getting at is a loss of faith in a spouse is not an automatic deal breaker. And in fact, like we studied last year with, with Mormon's situation among the people at the end of the Book of Mormon, even if you lose faith in the person's faith or lose hope in the person's spiritual return, you can still hold on to charity. And of those three cardinal Christian virtues, which is the one that never faileth, it's charity. You can, you can still love each other. And that's true of those who began a marriage by marrying a non-member. I know people in that situation. Uh, by those who started their marriage on the same spiritual wavelength, but then one person left it. There can still be beautiful relationships there. Now, that's, those are the verses that precede the verse in question. And then the two verses that follow it. Keep listening to Paul. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? So Paul in those verses is offering us both possibilities. What would happen if, when my father-in-law said to my mother-in-law, are you planning on leaving the family too? What if she said, yes, I'm out of everything well, am I supposed to feel trapped by my covenants? Am I in bondage, Paul says? Again, I'm doing everything that I can. To, and, and when faith and hope are gone, I'm still holding on to charity. I'm trying to be forgiving. I'm trying to make this work. But there are times where, and I'm, I'm the last person to give any marriage advice on, on staying or going in a difficult relationship. That is totally, and bishops aren't supposed to say one way or the other either. It's, this is a decision that is intensely personal and must be made by the persons involved and hopefully the companionship of Christ. He wants to be united in this ministry too. Often it's a matter of the person that's left. If they feel so trapped by your covenants that they're deciding to leave, well, you don't have to beat yourself up for the rest of your life over broken covenants that you never intended to break. But, like I said, in those situations that I've known, it's typically the decision on the part of the departure that, that, that they're the one that, that makes the decision. It's usually not the person that's holding on to their covenants with Christ that wants to break the covenant they had originally made with, with the spouse. There's a little bit of illogic there. You know? So, if there's other things that are going on, then yes, the person can be justified uh, in deciding that, but that's personal and that's going to be between them and the Lord. But in this situation, I love what Paul says. He gives us that hint, hey, you're not in bondage. I, I get it. That's a possibility, and that might have to happen. But he pulls us back to this idea of we're called to peace. And why did God call us to peace? Because you don't know the end of the story yet. You don't know if you're holding on to your vertical covenant will actually someday help call your spouse back to their horizontal one, to you, and their vertical one, to God. You're called to peace. So rather than, than shake off the, the person on the other hand or use that hand to, to clench a fist and punch them as they fall into the river of filthy water, no, just if they're willing to hold on to your hand, hold on to theirs. Now don't give up your other hand on the, the iron rod. You definitely need to keep an iron grip on that iron rod. But if they're willing to hold your other hand, you're called to peace. Because you know what? As long as they stay connected through you, to the iron rod, when they have their experience with God, they'll have an easier time rejoining the iron rod themselves. In my in-laws' case, as years passed and my mother-in-law hit rock bottom, which, as I've told you before, is such a beautiful place to be since you're back in contact with the rock that's beneath you, she started over. And when her youngest missionary son returned from his mission, she was ready to be rebaptized. The believing husband, and in this case, a whole bunch of believing kids and children-in-law and grandkids that love her because she's so worthy of that love, she was sanctified by that. And now she's playing the reverse role as this believing mother-in-law is still holding out faith and hope and charity to other loved ones in her life. They can still be sanctified by, by her faith and testimony, even if they've lost their grip on faith and testimony themselves. God plays the long game. Let's be patient, especially patient with each other. In fact, even if you go back to the end of that, the verse in question, you can see at the end of verse 1 in section 74, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy? It's really interesting when you start wondering well, what, ha- what becomes of the kids. If, if my spouse has lost their faith and, and even if we don't get divorced or have a temple annulment or anything, there's, they're still not living the gospel. They're not, they don't care. They don't want it. They don't believe in any of it anymore. What does that mean for our children? Are, they still see, I mean, are, are we still sealed? Are they still sealed to us? Now, I don't know all the details. I believe in God and his omniscience and his omnipotence and his love. If I got those four things down, then I'm okay with all the things I don't have down. God's up there he knows the answer to your your difficult and and complicated what if he has the the power to implement the plan that he knows is the best one and because he's love it'll be the best possible outcome for all concerned those four exclamation points help me through all of my question marks but what i love about the end of verse 1 it's like if you if you drop that and this and your children are unclean but hey now they're holy as long as one of them's holding on it's kind of like if you had to decide one or the other, which side are you going to err on? And the Lord errs on the side of, well, let's call them holy. I'm not, I'm not going to automatically just, oh, they're unclean. It's, it's as if God is deciding to honor the, the righteousness and faith and hope of the believing parent. And just go, you know, 50-50, the tie goes to the faithful. Well, how, how about that? I'm going to focus on the positive, the believing parent that makes their children holy as opposed to the negative, the unbelieving parent that you worry is making your children unholy. To all of you children out there of mixed faith parents, God honors you for your strengths. He doesn't condemn you for your situation. My mom grew up in that situation with a mom who was faithful and a dad who came home from World War II and was no longer and didn't just leave the church but left the family too. His story ended up turning around decades later, and he returned to the faith, though by then, as far as marriage was concerned, he couldn't return to the family. As a grandson, I thought he was a wonderful grandfather, and I know he wanted to to make up for lost time and be the grandfather he didn't get to be as a father. He was a wonderful great-grandfather by the time he passed away. But my mom grew up holy, not unclean. And God blessed her and her siblings for their strength rather than condemning them for their situation. Now, starting in verse 2, the Lord is going to help Joseph and the other saints understand this concept a little bit better. I mean, like I said, the Joseph Smith translation doesn't change this verse from the King James original at all. It was properly translated. It just wasn't properly understood or interpreted. So here's a better interpretation. Verse 2. Now, in the days of the apostles, the law of circumcision was had among all the Jews who believed not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, that was the sign of the covenant made with Abraham. But circumcision as one of those outward manifestations, it was something that they did uh, to, to show that they were part of God's covenant people. It was a make it or break it kind of a thing. And you read the book of Acts, and it's huge in terms of, well, converts joining the church that are Gentiles. Do they have to pass through Judaism on the way to Christianity? Do they have to be circumcised? How does this work? You know, Peter's vision for Cornelius, all of this. The shift was, was huge going from, from Judaism to Christianity. And, and the law of circumcision was kind of at the crux. In verse 3, it came to pass that there arose a great contention among the people concerning the law of circumcision. For the unbelieving husband was desirous that his children should be circumcised. I mean, after all, he's, he remained Jewish and become subject to the law of Moses, which law was fulfilled. So here you have dad saying, our, our sons have to be circumcised. They're Jewish. And mom saying, no, they ha- don't have to be circumcised. They're Christian. And circumcision was like, you've either done it or you haven't. Okay. It's not like, well, let's compromise on this. Uh-uh. There, there's no compromise. Are we doing it dad's way or are we doing it mom's way? And that's where things get so hard. There are ways to kind of overlap or kind of a Venn diagram here of whatever. Are, these are the things I don't want my kids involved in. These are the things I absolutely do. And this is the middle. Where are we going to be able to, to make some compromises? But circumcision was a you've done it or you haven't. And in places where there can be no compromise, sadly, that's typically the places where there can be a lot of contention. And that's the phrase that strikes me most powerfully there in verse 3. There arose a great contention. Now on the level of scripture study, it's really helpful to see here's a verse, well, what's the context in which it was given? Well, that's why I went back to 1 Corinthians 7 and read the verses before it and the verses after It's why it's nice to, to understand a little bit of New Testament history and what's going on with Jewish and Gentiles and converts to the church and the shift in the book of Acts and so on. When it comes to scripture study, If this is a difficult verse or a complicated passage, try to get the bigger picture. Understand the context. But this is far more important than just a lesson on scripture study. How about a lesson on interpersonal relationships when it comes to mixed faith? I would still pull out that same phrase. And beware of great contention. Now I know that what I'm trying to say here is so much easier said than done. But our our goal must always be to avoid contention, even in places where compromise is so difficult to achieve. There's a proving of contraries that's going to need to take place here. And I've, I think I've shared this before, I had a a set of students, a class once that asked, what do you do, which side should you err on? We were talking about a particular set of contraries and they said, which side should we err on? And the bell was about to ring and I knew class was over and I didn't have time to explain it. So I just said, just don't err. And then we had to leave. And I remember feeling like such an idiot on the drive home going, just don't err? I just did. What do you mean don't mess? Contraries are so hard to prove. Remember, it's the miniature golf hole that looks like a volcano. I'd right? get it up and over and down. Ah, this one's hard to sink. And so I came back the, the next class and said, I'm sorry that I aired in my, in my recommendation for you not to ever air. And I've thought about it. Which side is better to err on? And I think this is the answer. Err on whichever side gives you another chance to err a little bit less the next time. So justice and mercy, usually that's an err on the side of mercy. So you can take a baby step back towards justice the next time. On law and love or truth and tolerance, often it seems best to err on the side of love or tolerance hoping that they'll hold on so that you can give some gentle course corrections back in the direction of law or truth. These, these are brutally hard things, but we must do our best to avoid contention. Even if we can't control their contentiousness, hopefully we can control our own. In verse 4, we're back to the context of this verse. It came to pass that the children, being brought up in subjection to the law of Moses, gave heed to the traditions of their fathers and believed not the gospel of Christ, wherein they became unholy. Now, as far as counsel to mixed couples, this might be some important differentiation also, because the Lord compares traditions of the fathers to the gospel of Christ. And I wonder sometimes when somebody leaves the church, what specifically are they leaving? Perhaps they are leaving the whole thing. But perhaps what's driven them away isn't actually the gospel of Christ at all it's rather traditions of the fathers and to those you can often say good riddance it's like somebody's going to leave the church what is there any part of it you still want to hold on to any doctrines or principles or practices that you did find value in because maybe the parts of the church they're leaving were just tradition anyway and man when you have when you're almost forced to carve down, to, to, to cut down to bone almost. What is the gospel of Christ? And can we agree on that at least? Even if you don't want to give Christ the credit, love and forgiveness and mercy and kindness and self-sacrifice and those kinds of things, can we still build a life and a relationship and a family around those things? Because those will invite the Spirit, and that will help soften hearts we've got to un- we've got to understand the difference between tradition and gospel. In verse 5, wherefore for this cause the apostle wrote unto the church, giving unto them a commandment, not of the lord, but of himself, that a believer should not be united to an unbeliever, except the law of moses should be done away among them. Now we're starting to learn a little bit more about the context of what Paul is teaching there in 1 Corinthians 7. He goes beyond what we already read there when he says what what Paul's counsel was and counsel It was a commandment not of the Lord, but of himself. And Paul admitted that in that chapter. He says, to the rest, speak I, not the Lord. So it's like I'm taking off my apostolic hat for a moment and just giving you some advice from that somebody who's lived life too, and and this is the best counsel I can offer you. But I don't want you to, to feel that this is absolutely the will of God in your specific situation, because only God knows your specific situation. So this is counsel, not commandment. But the counsel that he's given is, yeah, you, you probably want to avoid those kinds of mixed faith marriages unless you can agree upon some certain ground rules in advance. For this one, it was, can, well, can we at least have, be, be done away with the law of Moses in our home? Now, that might be a deal breaker for the Jewish father or the Jewish mother, if that's the case. In which case, okay, there's a, there's a difficult decision that's going to be made. But if, I like the principle here of if you're going to enter a mixed-faith marriage, or if one person departs from the faith and you want to maintain what has now become a mixed-faith marriage, it's healthy and helpful to, to put some ground rules down. We saw earlier, decide, are we going to stick together? Are we going to make the most out of this situation and, and see things in, in the most positive possible light? Are we going to do our very best to avoid contention over these issues? Are we going to try to differentiate between traditions and and gospel truths? And in this one, can we at least lay out some preliminary ground rules? Some understanding of things that really, really matter to me. And some things that really, really matter to you. In some ways, it's a matter of prioritizing our differences and deciding which ones are negotiable compared to which ones are non-negotiable. That's an important part of the relationship, too. Then in verse 6, that their children might remain without circumcision, and that the tradition might be done away, which saith that little children are unholy, for it was had among the Jews. See, according to that verse, they were starting to misunderstand the purpose of circumcision, just like... Christianity had begun misunderstanding the purpose of baptism. Thinking that, oh, well, baptism is what makes us holy. It cleanses us from original sin, so it has to be done at, at birth. Well, circumcision is what makes us holy, and it has to be done at birth. No, it's actually God that makes us holy. It's Christ and Christ alone that can cleanse us from sin. So what was circumcision for? What was baptism for? It was a reminder of covenants. And covenants with Christ are what makes the difference. It's not the water in the font that washes away our sins. There's, there's no soap or, or chlorine or pH-balanced solution that's, that's strong enough for the soul. But Christ is. So this is another mention of tradition. Oh, be, be careful about certain traditions, too, that, that interfere with true gospel truths. Children are not unholy. That's not why we're baptizing or circumcising. In fact, verse 7 clarifies it. Little children are holy, being sanctified through the atonement of Jesus Christ. That is the absolute bedrock foundation of what Mormon was teaching in Moroni 8, of what Paul was teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, of what the Lord is teaching through Joseph Smith here in section 74 as Jesus said suffer the little children to come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven you're not baptizing or circumcising little children to make them more like you you're raising them in hopes that you can become more like them an innocent sweet desire to connect with God that sometimes as we age ends up becoming so much more forced or unfaithful little children are holy And not because they're perfect or sinless before the age of eight. We've joked about that before, that most kids seem to be uh, quick learners and began committing sins before the age of eight. But why why, why are they still unaccountable? Because the Lord in his mercy didn't count it against them. They are holy through the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's thanks to him, not thanks to their inherent nature. There's a difference there. Now, we could end right there on a beautiful thought about the Lord's love for little children. But that's not how the Revelation ends. And I just want to end this week's lesson on the way the Lord ended the Revelation, because I love it. At the very end, after explaining this for the last seven verses, he just kind of throws this at the end. And this is what the Scriptures mean. And I love that, because nobody can say that but God or his prophets. I mean, honestly, I do so much interfaith work and I've wrestled with anti-Mormons over things and and learned that Bible bashing does no good to anyone because what does it boil down to? What do the scriptures mean? It's just biblical interpretation and people have different lenses to view it through and different ways that they interpret texts. Almost every time somebody wants to bash me into submission from an anti-Mormon perspective... If they're pulling out Bible verses and say, well, the Bible says this, instead of getting all defensive about it and finding another verse that bashes them back, I'll usually just very calmly smile and go, ah, that's a great verse. And based on your theology, which I think I'm pretty familiar with, I can see why you interpret it in that direction. It's cool. Our theology leads us to interpret it in this direction. So I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree because we interpret that verse differently. And that frustrates them, and they're like, "No, but this verse says." And I'm like, oh, "That's another great verse, which you interpret to mean this, and we interpret to mean that." To me, it's ironic that 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 a lot a lot of well-meaning people that are trying to drag us away from the restored gospel, they just they beat us over the head with the Bible. And to me, the irony of that is, we believe in the Bible, so everything that you're saying out of the Bible that you're that you mean to to kind of paint us into a corner, we have a way to get out of the corner because that, that Bible verse is part of our scriptural canon as well. I hate to break it to you, but you'll never prove me wrong, quote unquote, with a Bible verse because we believe in the Bible. We've had to come to grips with those verses just like you have. We just interpret it in a different way. It's like that thing I was laughing at from, verse, from section 20 when it's the verse about, hey, you can't add or take from the Bible. And everyone's like, oh, see, you can't do that. And it's Revelation 21. And I just laugh and go, oh, yeah, we, we love that verse. We actually included it in some of the verses, in some of the scripture that, that we added. And they're like, what? You can't do that. It's like, no, we can. It actually just is evidence that we interpret that verse differently than you do. So, again, we're back to disagreeing without becoming, hopefully, without becoming disagreeable. You remember what Joseph Smith said in Joseph Smith History. What finally convinced him that he was going to have to stick with the vertical rather than the horizontal in coming to know religious truth? Because he went to all these other religions as often as time would allow, but he said the, the teachers of religion of the various sects understood the same passage of Scripture so differently as to destroy all confidence in settling the question by an appeal to the Bible. I think that's one of the most profound things Joseph Smith ever said in Joseph Smith history. Because it lets us know that Bible bashing, that's the contentious side. How about even just proof texting? That doesn't work. Because it just boils down to biblical interpretation. Which to me, when I'm in those conversations with people, I finally have to say that's what that's what it is. That's that's where we're left how do we interpret scripture? And rather than just arguing over interpretation verse after verse after verse, because we can do that all day and some days have been spent in that with people that just won't let it go. To me, it comes back to the, the bigger question, the preliminary question. How do you interpret scripture? Or who interprets scripture for you? You see, there's a passage at the end of 2 Peter chapter 1 where he says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You see what Peter just said there? Scripture isn't meant for us to interpret it privately. To borrow the language, the jargon of divinity school, we are not given our own personal hermeneutic lens. Hermeneutics is how do you interpret scripture? Well, Peter is saying there's only one hermeneutical lens that's authorized by God, and that's through his authorized servants. I mean, the word didn't come by the will of man. So why do you think you can interpret the will of God by the will of man? It's his word. So he deserves to have a say in its interpretation. And how did he reveal it the first time? Through revelators, through prophets, through seers. So how is he going to interpret it after the fact? Same way. It's got to be that way. In fact, Peter's word was reminding me of what we studied last week in section sixty eight what makes what constitutes scripture when someone is moved upon by the Holy Ghost? Then it's the word and the will and the voice and the and the mind and the power of God. But when it comes to interpretation, it has to be interpreted by that same spirit, which is best voiced by authorized prophets and apostles of God. In fact, this hit me most clearly in an interfaith conversation I was having with people, as a bunch of wonderful evangelical friends were saying, no, no, but the Bible says. I'm like, no, no, no but the Bible says. And I share that verse at the end of 2 Peter 1. But then this other thought came to my mind. And I said to them, do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2? And I said, oh, of course, it's in the Bible. I know. Nobody knows the Bible better than you guys. But think about it. What, what, did he, what test was he putting out for the, for the wise men and for Daniel? Remember the situation, and we were talking about this passage. Uh, it's amazing to me, in, in light of this of this kind of dilemma, how do we interpret Scripture? Because Nebuchadnezzar gathers the people, his astrologers and wise men, and so on. He says, "Okay, I had a dream, and I need I need an interpretation. I just can't figure it out." And obviously, the first question they asked was, "Okay, what was the dream? You tell me the dream, and of course, we'll we'll interpret it for you." And this is where Nebuchadnezzar says, "No, no, no, no." Uh, I, I don't remember it. Now, most people believe that that was just a, a play or a ploy on Nebuchadnezzar's part to really test these quote-unquote wise men. Because if he really didn't remember it at all, then they could have you know, agreed behind closed doors and come up with any dream they wanted. And he can't say, no, that wasn't it, because he doesn't remember what it is. So that, that wouldn't really do anything. But if he does remember the dream, But he tells them, oh, no, no, can't. Huh, Slip my mind. But would you just remind me of what the dream was and then interpret it? This then becomes a test. And what's it a test of? Really, it's a test of their power to interpret. Because here's the thing. Can't anybody interpret dreams? I mean, especially if there's no proof of what, I mean, there's no, like, answer key. Like, no, that's exactly what it means. No, it's... It's like interpreting poetry or art or music or things. I think it means this. And it's like, oh, that's a possibility. And there's infinite possibilities, just like with scripture. So many ways you can interpret it. You name the, the different denomination, and they have a different way to interpret certain scriptures. Otherwise, they wouldn't be different denominations. This is actually what Catholicism brands the scandal of Protestantism, that... It's almost like Martin Luther, you were naive to think that you didn't need a a magisterium, as the Catholics call it, a a central authority to interpret scripture. You thought that the scripture, that the Bible was a self-interpreting text. Well, the the multiplicity of Protestant denominations lets you know that 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 was naive because people do not interpret the scripture the same way. Catholics still say that about Protestants to this day. And that's what Joseph was getting at. They understand the same passage so differently. It destroys all confidence in settling the question by an appeal to the Bible. I mean, Abraham Lincoln understood that. And and it's carved in stone on the side of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. That North and South believe in the same Bible and pray to the same God. Then how on earth do they come to such radically different conclusions over the slave issue, for example. Oh, because they interpret the texts differently. Oh, we all agree the Bible's God's word. We just can't agree on what it says or what it means. Remember Joseph learned about the true meaning and intention of their more mysterious passages after he'd been baptized? Oh, it's one thing to figure out what they mean. Ah, it's another thing to figure out what they intend by that meaning. So, sorry for the aside, back to King Nebuchadnezzar and his dream. So what's he doing with these wise men? See, the problem is anybody can interpret. It's really not that hard because there's no way to to prove or disprove an interpretation. But a revelation? Ooh, nobody can do that. In fact, that's what the, the wise men say. When he says, no, I need you to reveal my dream first and then interpret it second. And they say, nobody can do that. Well, I mean, except God. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, exactly. You see, if anybody can do the interpretation, but only God can do the revelation, then I want somebody to prove that they can reveal, because then I'll trust that they can interpret. You understand? There is a level of authority on the part of revelation that only God's authorized servants can do. And so what Nebuchadnezzar is setting up here is prove to me that you can do the impossible and then I'll trust you when you come to do the possible. Do what no one can do and I'll trust you when you do what anybody can do. Now, do you understand what, I mean, that was all just coming out of my mouth as I was talking with this evangelical group. It was like, whoa, this was starting to click and make sense for me as I realized and tried to help them realize the authority for interpretation has to be on the same level as the authority of revelation. And that's prophets, seers, and revelators. No wonder Peter said what he said. It's not private interpretation. It's holy men of God as moved upon by the spirit of God. And that's how you come to the unity of the faith. That's why I love the end of section 74 so much. To me, it's such an almost afterthought kind of understatement, like, oh, let me give you seven verses to explain this difficult passage that's been interpreted all these different ways. And at the end, kind of a mic drop of sorts. Oh, and that's what the scriptures mean. Period. With King Nebuchadnezzar in mind, whenever I read the end of section 74, I can kind of see Daniel poking out from behind with a big smile on his face. Because only he among all of those wise men in Babylon had the authority to say this is what the scriptures mean, because only he could reveal them. I testify of scripture, but I also testify of living prophets and apostles who God has placed before us to interpret them. I am so grateful to be united in the ministry with them. Because what is their ultimate goal in all that they do and all that they teach and all that they interpret is to help us all be united in the ministry with Christ. He is the Word of God. He is the Word made flesh. And it is His work and His glory to bring us back to God, immortality and eternal life. And that is what the scriptures mean.